Ja, hallo und herzlich willkommen. Hallo, well, hello, welcome um, for the next uh, committee meeting. We're in the 71st meeting now and we uh, established this uh, committee last summer um, for lawyers. We're missing Mr. Hoffmann, who's going through Can we please get rid of the echo? Has someone started YouTube in the Zoom conference? Okay, I hope it's working out now. Right, this is the 71st meeting. The question is, if not now, when? There's several reasons to ask this question, among others because hot things are brewing and coming to light now. On uh, Monday last, there was a pathology conference where um, I was present in Reutlingen. It was performed by uh, Professor Arne Burkhardt and Professor Walter Lang and Professor Werner Bergholt, who will be with us uh, later on. The results of the postmortem of 10 people uh, who died uh, shortly after um, vaccination against COVID-19, whatever uh, vaccine they received, um, um, and those results were presented. Uh, the results uh, were quite stark. In five cases, uh, most likely, and in two uh, cases, it was likely that there was a causal relationship between their deaths and the vaccination. Uh, so there were uh, thrombosis and myocarditis cases. Professor Beckholz, uh, it would be good if you could summarize some of that. And then uh, there was something else that actually came to light subsequently. Can you hear me? I can hear you and I hope you can hear me as well. Well, thank you for allowing me to um, say this again. The idea for the um, conference on Monday was that compared to previous vaccinations, the number of people who died increased by a factor of 50 with this uh, new so-called vaccination. It's pretty independent of uh, who is the manufacturer. And if you have such a stark, uh, alarming finding, you have to go um, to look into the details. And now um, the, the obvious thing is to look into um, the causal chain and colleagues Buchert and uh, Kamp gave the presented the results of the post-mortem and the um, microscopic uh, analyses. What we also saw that there were um, suspicious results in the blood picture, both the laboratory findings and under the microscope, the blood of people who have just received a vaccination uh, looks very strange uh, because uh, the money roll uh, phenomenon occurs. Um, so the red, um, platelets um, roll up like uh, money rolls basically which is a rare finding normally and now uh, there is a um, 
large number of these findings and uh, under the microscope there was also a, uh, a lot of strange particles that could be found um, in the blood, which is strange for a um, vaccine that should contain an active ingredient, but no solids uh, that are in the of a size of micrometer, sometimes a bit larger. Right, the uh, interesting thing here for somebody who has spent his entire professional life doing this kind of thing, um, there is a problem now, and then you uh, use all sorts of uh, analyses to uh, find out what's happening here. And if the Pfizer vaccine now, for instance, always shows square objects that are always similar to each other, and with AstraZeneca, for instance, you have entirely different objects that keep recurring that look more like a... Um, paper plane, then it's obvious that this cannot have a natural cause. And the question is, where does it come from? So the next step would uh, obviously be that Paul Ehrlich Institute, which is responsible for the quality of these vaccines, that um, this institute look at this in detail. So it's a... Um, call on uh, Professor Sukratech uh, uh, to uh, look into this. And I have about 20 years of experience in um, pharmaceutical in the pharmaceutical industry. It wouldn't be um, something that the um, manufacturer should wait for people to approach them. They should ask, oh, what's happening here? Show us the results. And wh what can we do to find out what's happening here. And it would be good if this happened here as well. So, right, let me summarize. In these findings, there were uh, strange phenomena occurring. And it's not only us who found it, there was a lot of people who found that these uh, objects can be found. And what I uh, would imagine now would be a A scanning microscope uh, analysis to see what they are. Well, let me just interrupt. Uh, so um, after the pathology conference, some people came forward or we had contact. It's a team from a university in Germany who currently uh, cannot um, uh, release their name, uh, who are doing research now. So thanks a lot for uh, giving us uh, your results that we can build on then. And I think that subsequently we will be able to uh, come up with questions that hopefully other research groups across the world uh, could answer those questions and, and could pick up the, um, the helm here. We uh, created a website, www.pathologie-conference.de. So uh, all the things that we're discussing now has have been linked, and the press conference is being translated in uh, 
number uh, numerous different uh, languages it's available in english italian spanish already french so everybody's affected by the same problem professor backwards we're looking forward to what you have to say i would like to um split my uh, share my screen du kannst mal versuchen can you see the uh, the screen you should see three vials here those are the vials that the various vaccines are delivered you can see Janssen, Pfizer, Comirnaty in the center and AstraZeneca on the right hand side now our colleagues took these vials you have to remove the liquid uh, uh, you can't see it on this uh, image here at the top in the lid there is a membrane that you can uh, uh, ram the uh, the syringe through and uh, the liquids individual droplets were uh, placed on an object carrier um, And um, you have to allow to desiccate because um, the scanning microscope has a vacuum and of course you can't uh, put a liquid in a um, vacuum. So that's a schematic of a, a scanning electron microscope. Um, it's, we don't really need to go into detail here. You use electrons uh, um, for analysis um, and the beauty is you can't only look at an image but you also can analyze what are uh, the elements contained um, so the yellow thing in the center here uh, is the electron ray and it penetrates up to four millimeter uh, uh, micrometers uh, depending on the material you're analyzing and then a lot of uh, things are reflected among other things the x-rays that are basically the fingerprint of the elements. So that's what such a desiccated uh, droplet looks like. That's AstraZeneca in this case. If you enlarge it a bit more, you can see there's some residue that creates these sorts of patterns, if you wish. That's not the important thing, what it looks like. But we can see two uh, red rectangles and here it was analyzed which elements you can find there. And what's the uh, exalt at the bottom? You can see it's a bit nasty that we have this pop-up window in front of the screen. I can't help it now, really. Down here you can see at least it says chromium and iron. Chromium and iron are either stainless steel components. Uh, how could chromium and iron get into this? We can certainly rule out or, or almost certainly rule out that it's from the syringe, even though I would suggest that uh, the colleagues uh, get one of those uh, vials uh, filled in um, clean conditions under clean conditions and then you analyze it again and you will certainly not find chromium or iron then uh, 
You can also find chlorine and uh, sodium because there was certainly a saline solution there. And on the right-hand side, you can see um, a good analysis will look into this as well. And you can see there's sodium chloride, so um, saline's uh, salt. Um, you find uh, carbon and oxygen, but there is no chromium or iron. So you can see this is a uh, counter check and um, what we have in the left sample, so that is uh, chromium and iron. Um, if it was from the uh, syringe, then it would be in both places. So this is something that you have to double check, basically. So we can make an image of what formed there in different colors, the colors representing the elements found there. And so we can see that the iron is concentrated in this uh, bluish turquoise area. So the iron isn't everywhere, it's concentrated in this location, whatever that means. That's just a um, factual finding and chromium and uh, iron are in the same location. So the source of chromium and iron is uh, certainly the same. Now, Pfizer same thing again an overview and then you have this desiccated pattern a desiccation pattern and we can see iron and chromium uh, both here and in the second location what you can't what you can see here is there's a third characteristic x-ray line and that should be nickel it's not uh, labeled here we would have to take a look at the table whether it is nickel but i'd say we can assume this for the moment other elements um, are sodium and chlorine again same thing again as a uh, colored picture to show the element composition and you can see iron is uh, across this uh, splotch here and the same goes for a chromium then johnson johnson there are different things that were looked at uh, these patterns how it uh, desiccates is always different uh, it certainly has its uh, significance too uh, you could only speculate and i won't do that now here you can see chromium and iron again and here you can see these are uh, interesting objects as well that are there and we'll see what this means later on so here you can see there's a uh, lower peak there again an xk x ray line something that tentatively i would uh, call nickel now or assume to be nickel uh, now the distribution where is this stuff it's not everywhere the iron is only in certain locations and you can't see it here but it is, um, uh, if you look at it more closely, you can see that the chromium is in the same positions. What does that mean for us? I have a bit of a challenge here, how I can change this now, stop this sharing the screen. What does it mean? 
well, there's iron and chromium in it, and the question is, where does it come from? Now, this is the finding. What I say next is hypothesis or assumption. A common source for such iron and nickel and iron chromium and probably nickel are uh, some uh, friction, uh, some abrasion in the production process that uh, goes through three stages with BioNTech Pfizer. There are three uh, different factories. A pre-product is made somewhere in the US. It goes to a different factory of Pfizer's where the next stage of a pre-product is made, and that, as far as I know, goes to Belgium, to production. And there, as far as I know, uh, there are bioreactors there that I assume have a size of several hundred meters where this uh, active ingredient is made in uh, an industrial process, in a mass uh, production process and that are then uh, put into the vials along with some other substances. Now, where do these uh, metal objects come from? I'd say uh, there's no way of telling uh, right now. It could be some abrasion. It could also be with, as we know, with BioNTech on Pfizer, but not with AstraZeneca. There are nano objects, these nano lipids uh, involved. In nano material specifications, in the technical specifications, it is commonplace to uh, specify the quantity of foreign uh, matter, among others, chromium. Uh, iron and nickel. How come there is at least one production method for these nanoparticles? It's called, let me see, I can't uh, remember now. Anyway, this uh, production method uses a catalyst where iron or other metals uh, are often used. So that's, that's a potential source, but also some abrasion from the production process. We don't know uh, where it comes from now. That would be the request to the, um, product, the producers to find out. As AstraZeneca, as far as we know, doesn't contain any nan nanoparticles. It couldn't be from this uh, process unless the paper uh, plane objects um, of a few micrometer size um, have been added for whatever reason. Is it possible or thinkable that uh, this is some kind of additive? Some vaccines seem to contain uh, aluminium as this boosts the immune reaction. Is it thinkable that this will be done with other metal type elements? That is conceivable, yes. Well, when 
These assumptions uh, were floated that there's a graphene oxide. That's only assumptions or hypotheses so far. I uh, thought, no, that's not possible. And I looked into uh, this and found to my surprise that in experimental cancer therapy, this uh, appears to be um, common, um, commonplace to use graphene oxide in uh, human experiments as an um, enhancing uh, additive because it is much um, more effective than aluminium. So um, it's not like uh, it's completely inconceivable, at least in cancer therapy, at least in a, at an experimental stage, um, this is huge. Uh, it's been peer-reviewed by different scientific uh, publications. And are these elements that have been found, could that also be elements from graphene, or graphene oxide, or is that something different that we uh, cannot assess at this point or that we have to look for in a different way? Well, if the um, production process of the um, um, graphene oxide was a bit sloppy. Uh, there are uh, different types of manufacturing graphene, uh, graphene oxide, um, making it from uh, clean graphene in order to individualize the um, graphene particles and then oxiding, uh, oxidizing them. What you can also do with graphenes is to uh, functionalize it, i.e. to deliberately allow uh, other elements to attach to the surface in order to give the nanomaterials other properties. That is quite common, uh, both in medicine, uh, for all sorts of applications, depending on what you want to do with this um, uh, material. And the introduction of these metals into the body, what all these nanoparticles, this is not a common procedure. We don't have any other areas of application except from cancer treatment where these experimental things are done or these nanoparticles or the metal elements, whatever it may be. Um, that's not known from other treatments, is it? Well, I'm not aware of it. Uh, and that is why I was extremely skeptical to start with vis-a-vis uh, -vis this uh, graphene oxide story. However, what has come to light in the meantime that the Japanese colleagues i.e. the Japanese equivalent of Paul Ehrlich Institute actually found um, precious metal particles uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt in the Moder Moderna uh, vaccine. And I took a look at it, it actually looks like abrasion. There are um, some objects that don't look as uh, equivalent um, to each other as you observe it under the microscope with uh, Biotech Pfizer and um, AstraZeneca. Uh, 
I'd say that is some unfiltered um, operation. I'm uh, coming from a background of microelectronics, so in these production processes, some operation from pressures uh, of, of um, stainless steel, it's blind uh, piping or whatever, is quite commonplace and it looks similar to what I saw in this Japanese study. Yesterday, the person I talked to told me that in one of the samples, they had found um, uh, rare earths as well. Could that also source from a production process? It's uh, something very expensive, so I think it's something unusual to use that in in a bioreactor or something. Do we have any findings concerning this and what it could mean and what do they do in their body? Are they different from the metal um, metals? Whether this is used in bioreactors, I have no idea, but the manufacturer should be able to tell you. The only application in medicine that I'm aware of is that with uh, analysis, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, um, you use gadolinium, and um, then you can get that in the actual um, uh, therapy or um, analysis. I didn't prepare for that now. I would have to look that up again and um, um, verify it with my colleagues uh, of the uh, Jacobs University who look into this specific aspect. But if we find these particles, then this is unusual and it cannot be um, inside the samples by coincidence. Um, the rare earths aren't as rare as implied by the name, but they're rare enough to uh, find them, to make it uh, unusual to find them in the samples. Okay, crazy. I know that there is more examinations and research going on, um, looking at it at body temperature or with uh, addition, additive uh, blood, um, because our blood contains iron. I don't know uh, about the biologic side and the possible reactions that there may be, but maybe in the blood we have some kind of iron component which interacts in some way with the ingredients. That's correct. Uh, hemoglobin. Um, contains a lot of iron. Iron is the core element that allows the red blood cells to absorb oxygen in the lung and to release it where it is needed. Well, I uh, think it's pure hypothesis, to be honest, um, to uh, expect that nanoparticles can be functionalized such that they enter into some interchange with uh, the iron in the uh, red blood cells. It is in principle conceivable, but it's uh, completely speculative right now. What is not speculative, though, is uh, this, um, uh, this process of rouleau formation. Um, it has to do something with what is being injected into people here. It is such an uh, obvious finding 
Um, there is a clear call on uh, Paul Hiel Institute to enter into an immediate analysis because this, after all, has an impact on people. And what I've also found, if I want to determine blood groups, and if somebody receives a um, uh, blood donation, um, and before they receive it, the blood uh, group is determined again in the hospital. And if uh, rouleau formation is quite extensive, then it is more likely that this test is no longer possible. So independently of whether these blood samples are good or bad or indifferent for the person who receive it, uh, if I can't double check what blood uh, uh, group it belongs to, then I can't um, give a donation because the patient must not receive that donation. But this is quite confusing because we had the report that vaccinated people are asked to donate blood uh, just after the vaccination. So it's strange if that is difficult to identify with these and maybe then there is just a I don't know a, a kind of passport I don't know where and there one would have to have a problem that also the donators it's difficult to determine this well it's a certain <laughs> fact that in Japan People who have been vaccinated are not allowed to donate blood. I have had um, many contacts in the past with Japanese companies and the Siemens representative in uh, Japan. And the main characteristic of the Japanese is that they are incredibly careful. And I'm not surprised that uh, this was found in um, Japan and that they are handling it this way. So I'd like to praise uh, the care that uh, the Japanese colleagues go uh, to. So we could learn in Germany something from uh, the Japanese. So we uh, are considered to be the most careful ones in the Western world. We could simply really learn from them. If a Japanese colleague um, comes up with the rods, I would uh, <coughs> trust him. So we can find that there is a lot of stuff found which we don't have an explanation for, right? Exactly, and we have to look into this. And this is first and foremost, let me repeat it, the responsibility of the manufacturers and of course the responsibility of the Paul Ehrlich Institute Um, if institutes and uh, colleagues and Bochert uh, and Lang and myself do this, that's optional. We're not paid for it. We have no vested interest in it. This is just our uh, societal responsibility to look into this. Okay, you're not the competent person. You've mentioned the competent bodies, and that's exactly what we do here. We're not actually uh, responsible for this. The parliament should have done this committee, and we're doing their work, really. Yeah, well, um, subsequently to the uh, conference, I got various mails by doctors, by physicians, a urologist contacted us who asked the question, um, He's uh, 
simply observing um, that uh, women tend to have more uh, urine tract infections that can't be uh, healed anymore and that uh, men have more prostate uh, complaints that have no bacterial or other obvious cause that can be easily determined. And this physician had asked us to uh, bring together the experience that other uh, people have in their practices. I think that's very important. There's the pathology conference uh, where you can check out the website to turn to them, or you could turn to us, to the committee, and we'll forward it to the specialists so we can um, connect you uh, with the right people so that the people who don't do their job, who should be doing their job, um, that we um, do their job, uh, pick up the slack here and bring the uh, various pieces of information together. I think uh, urgent is the right way word here. We have a situation where uh, now 12 to 17 year olds are allowed to be vaccinated and which are who are vaccinated and everybody who wants to do so can go to the Robert Koff website um, and look at this uh, document, Epidemiologic uh, Build 31, where it is explicitly stated that children and uh, adolescents of, of that age have no significant risk by the infection. <clears throat> and they also play no role in transmitting it and we surely know and the data is given in that document that there is, they have a significant risk by the vaccination and if you look at the risk ratio um, this is something I have to say here. The uh, risk ratio uh, by the vaccination divided by the factor risk uh, by the uh, by the agent, it's uh, one to ten or one to hundred. So I can't really understand how the Commission on Vaccination states that it can recommend it to vaccinate. And after all. I uh, and it also mentions that um, this is the this would take the psychological pressure off them, and that has nothing to do with any disease. Uh, this is a pressure caused by politics. So I think it would be uh, that would be the right place to start. So we have an issue, and maybe to um, close my presentation here in analyzing and understanding what we are really looking at. We are about at 10 to 20 percent so far. Someone said we are in the stage of um, wondering about the problem rather than about understanding it. And, uh, and so this is my, why my request goes out to everybody who wants to commit themselves and get engaged, just as Mrs. Fisher has said, address the uh, contact the Corona committee if you have this type of result and especially, of course, the Paul Ehrlich Institute and the producers do something. Well, Professor Beckholz, uh, very important to um, get some explanation here because it's really difficult to understand this highly technical um, processes that uh, we need to t take a look at this. 
It's really only specialists who can understand this, uh, including the question of the nanolipids, where there's these cathodic uh, nanolipids that uh, are contained there, um, and we have to look into their uh, impact. There are very uh, few specialists in the labs that can do this. Uh, even uh, a scientist from the Paul Ehrlich Institute um, are called upon to uh, give us hints on our website, uh, certainly confidentially, and um, uh, if you wish, uh, relying on uh, lawyers' confidentiality. Well, concerning the nanolipides, I can comment that the boss of BioNTech himself said that the actual difficulty was to find the suitable nanolipides and in the admission document by the EMA, the authorization document, it says that there have to be reliable methods of characterizing these lipides have to be developed by the end of the year. I haven't heard of that yet so far. So that is a notable situation that I use a material which um, I can't check on according on its criteria on its characteristic according to the state of the art and that's quite notable all right thanks a lot we will uh, establish the links necessary we'll put the websites on uh, online and we'll keep up with it thank you very much okay so we'll swap subjects although we are quite uh, well uh, following up on what we've just heard possibly harmful substances ingredients in the vaccines um, confirmed by pathology what does that mean if we look at that in combination with the circumstance that by now there are many adverse reactions to be observed and many uh, deaths are to be observed then this may lead to criminal lawsuits and civil lawsuits uh, compensation for damage and on the criminal side this may be um, murder but that would mean a justice system that works and the question that we have in germany is whether it does work or whether it is not maybe not only since corona um something that i called uh, um, a pile of uh, smoking rubble and it, what we have to see if we look at the how to deal with big corporates now we are talking um, about uh, many or maybe all big global corporates and as of i can confirm this as a field study so to say um, we my, me and my colleagues in my practice when we had the rubbish um, estate uh, cases we can only confirm that if you fight against big corporates the courts tend to uh, follow the ideas of the corporates that's a political intent uh, we remember what mrs merkel said 
um, where the Deutsche Bank is a system-relevant bank. And it was easy to suspect that this was mean it is as relevant that it is above the law. And if we um, find that here we you hang the small and apply all the all the law to them and the big ones, you look away. So that's the observation that me and my colleagues have made to clarify this more just uh, one more statement if industry if global corporates amongst uh, following the with such aid by the politics think they are above the law actually politics should take a stand now if politics don't take a stand the last anchor of democracy and this is what we're talking about is justice and if that doesn't help and if that doesn't take a stand we have a massive problem but this has not only been the case since corona but i'll give you an example more or two before we turn to Wilfried Schmidt. One more example, which is Deutsche Bank. Here we had the real estate affair, uh, estate that was uh, sold to people with little money, uh, two to three times the price by agency agents or sell staff. So the that was the sale of the real estate together with the financing. Why do I say this? That these were sold at three to four times, uh, two to four to three times its value, because we know the banks knew all the other banks, the Hypo Bank, Disney Bank, Commerzbank, all the other banks were involved and uh, knew about this because they assessed the value. And I have a picture here which we may we can share which is picture number one, a credit contract which was um, accidentally sent to the customer, which holds the um, amount to be paid for a flat. This was a 20 square meter flat, uh, Duisburg-Mülheim. All of these uh, 200 flats were financed by the Deutsche Bank, given the conditions, given the interest and so on. So the sum is 118,820. On the back side, we see what the bank thinks about it. The bank, the customer was told the bank really stands behind this. You can't, ha nothing can happen. And the, uh, the um, amount of the credit covered by the value of the object is uh, 32,000 marks still. This was from all the times. So um, the people from employers from the banks um, proved this saying this was checked by the German bank. So um, uh, the customer paid 118,000 and uh, the bank said it's only worth uh, 32,000. And all the rest is just the money of the customer. And the customer had no money because they were, um, they were lower class, no income. So what was how was this covered? This uh, gap of uh, 86,000 marks, the, that was covered by a life insurance saying that this would make it safer, but that only covered the possible um, the possible um, default by the bank. 
and uh, or for the bank and this was at the end of the 80s and the 90s that was the test for the german bank for the deutschen bank and the other banks to really overdo it in the us and the us these uh, um, real estates there wasn't only flats it was houses they were sold to millions of people the deutsche bank did a massive role in this and all these credits that were known that the customer will never be able to pay for them all these credits and loans were bagged up in big boxes and sold as stock from Deutsche Bank to other banks. To stupid German money, that's what they called it at the time, to Bayerische Landesbank, to many German banks, EKB banks, most of them have gone bankrupt so far. So big packages, 400, 500 million with this kind of real estate sold uh, to the um, pensioner and telling them, look here for 20,000, you can get a uh, you can get a part of a real estate fund. This is a good, a good uh, estate with people living in it. They will always pay that. They will pay their interest rate eight to 10 percent and it failed because in the US and in many other countries um, if you can't pay your loan back which the bank um, has here at the amount of 118,000 and you see I can't pay for it because the rent was not paid it was too high all the time and the um, the uh, the financing costs were one third too low, the rents were one third too high. In the US, you can simply go off. You send the key to the bank and say, thank you very much, uh, take it, we're out. And the bank cannot, in most of the states, uh, do more than get the value which they have to ass assess before and get more money for it in and not from the customer nor from anybody else so the customer the bank needs to take the real estate in this case um, a real estate which it uh, financed with 118,000 which uh, was only uh, worth um, 32 in the end these flats were sold for 16,000 marks and this this is exactly the model that uh, modeled the uh, big economic crisis and it should have con had consequences and uh, not just uh, solemn words by Mr. Steinberg and Mrs. Merkel. And now it's much, much worse at this moment. The next picture will show you what um, ridiculous lies were given here by the bank and by the legal system. This is a destruction maneuver here the um, justice system should have uh, taken the proof and this was partly done and they found that the people who sold the flat and the loan that they worked for two people for the person who bought who sold and for the bank so they were employees of the bank they um, sold their loans and so that means the bank is liable for the wrong statements but the german highest court didn't want to agree to this so we can't really generalize but it was the 11th senate i had uh, filed 
filed a suit against them. Of course, um, that wasn't pursued, but all the decisions that were done were taken off and they tried to push the legal system in a way where no normal citizen could follow them and found an idea saying nothing matters. You only have to look at whether in these cases the bank had had a um, had um, had uh, the power of attorney had proxy at the point of time when the contract was closed and so they came up with this contract we give you the money straight away for these people who buy it and the customers so they don't have to think about very much on how to do a contract how to do a purchase contract a rental contract all these things they said don't worry there is a um there is a proxy and they will do everything and authority and as we now found they were the people who sold the loans for the bank so and the question arise arose in the courts and i tell you why even this exploded to the bank because even there they weren't able to work carefully uh, it ran out to the question did the bank give on the closer of the contract with the customer the customer was there and when that was there did the bank see the proxy and the bank had didn't see it it'll lose because if at the end of closing the contract the, the proxy was not there and here on this picture we see a typical contract a loan contract um this was financed um Ziegenham Kornberg is the place this is a small um loan a one thirty-one thousand. you see at the top and another second big one with the number eighty-seven hundred eleven thousand nine hundred thirty-nine. so around about uh, 140,000 marks and uh, that was a credit line this is why it's very expensive 12.25 percent interest and uh, the other is a credit so one is a credit line so i can go down below zero and the other one is a credit and i can use the credit until i get to the zero line that doesn't matter however here in this uh, credit alone 180 140,000 marks when was that closed because the question was did the bank have the proxy at the time of the or did it see it at the time of the closure of the contract um i'll go through it quickly hopefully uh, still understandable there's two ways one possibility is that this is done on the 29th of um, december we can see that down here uh, because that was when the bank signed here it was always the case that all contracts were proposed ready only the um, name profession and um, place of living of the customer was uh, put in because everything else was clear everything else was there including the salespeople who were trustees for the bank and uh, when the documents came back from the customer with the credibility which were of course trustees of the bank 
they just filled it all in and sent the complete contract without signature to the trustee. And as we see here, they signed on the 28th of uh, December 92. That was an offer to close the contract, as it's called. The first one who signs is the uh, makes the offer and the bank accepted it on the 29th by sending the money to the account of the customer. That is conclusion, uh, 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 um, acceptant, that can be done by signing, but here this is done concludently by concludent action, which we see on the next image, because the bank sent this to the customer. Together with the contract, it says we are uh, attaching a copy of the contract and are happy to um, provide the, con the loan as per 29th of December. And from that point on, they charged interest, 3% interest um, of the, from the customer account. And from that point on, when you use the money and transfer it elsewhere, that is when the contract interest rate is done. So, is applied. So, here, this means the bank fulfilled it uh, by providing money. So, that indicates that this was done on the 29th of December, 92. And all witnesses agreed to that these are witnesses from the bank by the way that at the point in time when the money is at the customer's account that is the closure of the contract and there was an ex amendment um, to the contract of the 29th says that the bank itself uh, talks about this date so why does she then go to court and uh, lie to the court? And how does she do it? How does it do it? This was the proxy that was given to the customer and which the bank had on, must have had seen on the 29th. That if it didn't, it, the contract would be void. So the question is, did the bank have it at that point in time? Can we have the next uh, document, please? Not the whole. This is the contract. This is what shows us when the proxy was sent to the bank, which we've just seen on the 7th of April, 93, by the uh, tax uh, company, by, which was the trustee of the bank. So, on uh, 7th of April, 93, we see here the acceptance by notary and the declaration and proxy. So, if that was only sent in April, it couldn't have been sent in December. End of the story, we win. Actually, we should. But the bank, in some cases, not in all, in this case, it was the case centered by um, registered mail and tells them that this is where we inform the customer that we have done the contract. 
That's what she originally did or said. In this case and in others, she found out, the bank found out, ooh, if we inform the customer later on the uh, closure of a contract on the 29th of December, we will lose because on the day of the conclusion of the contract, we did not have a proxy. So let's change our presentation. And then from 2002 on, we said, no, we didn't send it to, to the customer to inform them, but we send it in order to initiate the closure of the contract. We didn't want to give the customer the money. That wasn't the acceptance of the contract, but only when we sent the document. Only that closed the contract. Here, this is the 22nd of April, 93. At this point, um, it had sent the proxy. Everything okay, as we've just seen. And we see here to the customer, uh, arriving at the customer on the 22nd. 2nd of April. So what was the right date now? When did that happen? Um, the customer did the first uh, contracts. Can that be done without a contract? No, um, uh, that is not possible. Everybody knows that in the bank, but only the legal system don't seem to understand this. And this is what the judge decided to help the bank, because if not, the bank would have lost thousands of cases. On the 22nd of April, the bank, the contract was closed. That's what the judge says. You can't understand how they pay out the money before that and uh, charged uh, contractual interests, um, but these is uh, riddles that only legal staff can solve. So what is the ruling? This is the ruling of the um, Frankfurt uh, court and we would expect that they know about this and they know about bank things. So um, that means you understand that you get bank money from the bank if you do a contract and not say if you want to do a contract and maybe later you will. Um, so here it explains what it says. A contract is closed by two um, agreeing declarations of will or intent. And then it says not uh, that the uh, uh, acceptance was not done by the money. It is all witnesses confirm that. But it says no, this was uh, done by the registered letter only on the 22nd of April. End of the story, we lose and they got a couple of marks only. And then what turns out a couple of weeks later only after the ruling, was it the 29th or the 22nd in the next year? We find this in the uh, financial and the tax um, bureau where of our um, of our uh, of our client and they informed the financial the taxman the date of the contract closure 
29th of, April, of December 1992. So the bank clearly lied. The next day, which is the next uh, date, which is the date of, um, of validation, money on the account means I fulfill the contract and that means it is applicable. One day later, the money was done, was used. That's not possible without a contract still the court ruled such nonsense and as we had dozens of these cases hundreds of these cases th ten thousands of people were ruined i was talking about a smoking pile of rubble consisting of our legal system this is not the only case there's another case and i would like to uh, speak a word here for the people who like to keep up that um, that was Kuna Nagel, the bribery case, and I'd like to maybe show a link here. Uh, it came up on NDR, a German television station, Panorama 3, 10-minute report, very nicely done, showing in Hamburg, in this case, that is the headquarters of Kuna Nagel, they did everything to cover up the truth, to turn truth upside down, and to save the honor of the uh, First Senate, who is responsible, kicked in twice saying, this is not possible, do it right. Now we are up there for the third time, because for the third time, the um, Supreme George said they want to turn, uh, need to turn the system upside down because this is system relevant. I hope I didn't bore you too much. Thank Thank you for boring with bearing with me and i hope it wasn't too complex just was just to explain why me and my colleagues who worked in this area smoke off a smoking pile of rubble and that has been made very clearly now with uh, looking at the behavior of the legal system in the context of corona against the people against the judge at the local court in weimar who did a proper investigation with a proper delivery of proof unfortunately uh, ruling against Mr. Global, which is the corporates that maybe have taken our um, our politics hostage. Uh, this is something that really led to an international outcry. And if that is not enough as a signal for to wake up the justice system, I don't know what to do. But um, to not bore you too much, we have our colleague Wilfried Schmitz with us, who has something to share. Wilfried. Hello, everybody. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thanks for this uh, interesting case as well. What we're talking about now is of the most central and key importance. Uh, I notice that again and again when I uh, talk to people, even people who are critical of the corona measures and all, how in, in what status our uh, judicial system is what we've been seeing over the, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic um, which is possible only because the judicial system is failing not only in germany but uh, worldwide i thought initially i had to limit it to uh, the western world but we can, it's not true we can see it in australia and other countries what's happening there that is the main reason why social order is collapsing all around the judicial system is failing 
and um, uh, not uh, saying that uh, judges aren't uh, doing their job. Um, not every judge uh, presides over a case that has any relevance to Corona. Uh, I see always, uh, all the time I see uh, uh, law cases where uh, processes are uh, go through due course and a lot of judges um, uh, do a good job. But as you say, this is these are not individual cases. Uh, it's only possible at the dimension that it uh, is happening is that judges are failing uh, before the law, before people. It's really simple, the protection of the law. Um, legal protection, the way as uh, I have seen it, means obviously that the elites are protected from the law and the common man, the common woman has no right of protection anymore. That is my experience and I can prove this. That is the fundamental flaw of this world that we live in now. Why do people uh, bad things? Well, because they can and they can do it so openly, particularly since, the begin uh, since March of last year, simply because they're not afraid of penalties. Why aren't they afraid? Because they own the country, they own the state, they own the judicial system and the example from Weimar shows that uh, it doesn't always happen to uh, influence the judiciary 100%. There are always judges who take their uh, oath of office very seriously, but unfortunately, they're the exception. We always have to uh, see that again and again. And we have to make it clear to people that it has disastrous consequences when the judicial system denies people access to the law. This really takes us to hell. Man needs law. My poodle doesn't need it. They don't need it. Animals are not dependent on law, but people are. And if people don't have access to the law, then people are made, they're broken, they're made ill, and they are lost to society. And there are very dramatic examples, particularly when uh, violence is involved, uh, not only when large uh, corporations uh, rise above the law because they're in, uh, they uh, have impunity. Um, and things are really uh, simple. According to the German constitution, judges uh, are only uh, responsible vis-a-vis -vis the law, but unfortunately in practice I've seen uh, differently. I can give you great examples from my own practice, but uh, to avoid the impression that I'm um, out here to uh, on, on a vendetta, a personal vendetta, I want to refer to cases that I've read about in the literature. Now, just let me clarify one thing to start off with. I have worded it in a way that everybody can understand it. When can a person say they live in a state of law, a state of law deserving of this title? This is only possible if you live in a sovereign state that internally and externally is fully sovereign. And in this state, any execution of power is subject to effective control. And that must mean that all are equal before the law. If we have a caste of uh, business tycoons 
politicians and judges who seem to uh, be above the law, let me put it this way, then we cannot speak of a state of law anymore because the law has to be able to punish anyone, uh, even judges who violate the law. And only if these mechanisms work will effective access to law be guaranteed as it is guaranteed by the Constitution. Now, let's limit our, our considerations to Germany here. Nevertheless, it is an international phenomenon. Many years ago, I looked at the 9-11 complex and I found that in the US there was a lot of 9-11 uh, actors for 9-11, um, architects for 9-11, etc. So thousands of experts cooperated uh, internationally, so it goes far beyond what you showed uh, uh, very briefly um, and what you were able to look into with the uh, Corona Committee. Every stone was has been turned over ten times over. There are good books analyzing this, showing this, that this was an uh, inside job, it was a controlled detonation. But uh, to this day, in the US, nothing has been uh, verified legally, no um, lawsuit against any uh, people under suspicion. I know of no, um, of no um, conviction. So we don't can't wait for 20 years. Uh, we have to bring this back down to earth because otherwise everybody will um, suffer. So, you know uh, about the um, uh, Article 393 in Germany, uh, perversion of justice, and we had a uh, commentary in the um, to the Constitution, uh, which says that uh, in practice it's not used, it's ineffective. That was the case after 1949 uh, in dealing with uh, Nazi crimes. It was also the case after uh, 1989 uh, when um, the uh, Stasi dictatorship had to be dealt with legally. So um, all judges were basically uh, transferred to the uh, uh, West German legal system. Uh, this is a, a book that was published on it. Um, horrible um, legal experts. And these people just continued their careers without any problem. We know uh, that uh, nobody speaks about this. Try to uh, um, complain about a, a judge for a perversion of justice. Uh, this is really a case uh, that you gave earlier. Of course, every uh, mistake is not perversion of justice, but we have cases here, the one you just described, where common sense can't really understand what's happened there anymore. You read it in black and white, and yet um, the plaintiff is uh, uh, is rejected. That has nothing to do with common sense anymore, and you can find that every person knows what's right or wrong. Uh, even the most common person is not stupid enough 
uh, not to realize when the law per, uh, is perverted because uh, they are denied um, their right. Or as any lawyer knows, uh, try to um, um, reject a judge uh, for um, being biased and you won't be successful here. Maybe I can quickly jump in here to confirm you the uh, suspicion of uh, of partiality or um, saying that uh, the uh, judge may be biased that's enough last week only i had a very normal bank case nothing concerning consona in hildesheim and the client was in the uh, core uh, in the courtroom because i was in front of the wrong one um so a couple of people were in i came in a bit late i didn't wear a mask because i have a relief from the mask and the judge quite a nice guy until then asked me before we started the proceedings you probably have a um, relief from the mask and then probably you said this in the beginning yes in the entrance yes could you just show that again to me i say why do you don't you believe my lawyer's statement that i have here that i have that and he says no and then i said he is biased from that point on he is not able again anymore to look at my case without any bias so i dictated that and he took it up and also that he um, answered my concrete question do you not believe what i'm saying as a lawyer here said so i'm very interested to see how he gets out why still he was able to um carry on with that uh, proceedings strange things he basically says you're a liar, that, that you are lying to him. Yes, those are cases that every lawyer knows and every lawyer knows where this leads. Well, you can be sure that the um, um, application for bias will be rejected. No matter how um, justified it is, uh, just to show you that I haven't been looking into this since yesterday only. So if this is book is really um, very instructive. Professor Inge Müller um, also describes how come that the judges as a body are so conformant, uh, in much in conformity with the, uh, the system. Um, after the war, there were judges who actually published books um, who were known for their rebellious spirit, who uh, spoke out in public, but uh, uh, you can see uh, this man uh, took the um, legal system to a point where it won't uh, uh, rebel anymore. There are historic reasons. So a short, um, a few examples. William Schlotterer, um, and a courageous author who again and again has written about uh, the uh, corruption in Bavaria, uh, in politics in Bavaria. He wrote a number of books, uh, Power and Abuse from Strauss to Seehofer. His current book um, 
state crime, uh, the Hollards uh, case between um, black money, uh, hush-ups, and the uh, ruling party, the CSU. That's really a an excellent example because it showed um, to my full um, conviction um, that um, uh, the um, measures that the um, imprisonment in order to uh, impose um, uh, law um, findings, court findings, has been has been abused for decades in Germany. Um, you need to know, for instance, that the case, a number of uh, involuntary treatment has doubled in a very short time. Just an example. In uh, all uh, states, in um, 2006, about uh, 30,000 people were uh, in, uh, 3,000 people were uh, undergoing involuntary treatment, and uh, a few years later was twice that number. So we have these, these this two-tier approach. Um, on the one hand, imprisonment, on the other hand, involuntary treatment. That was introduced in 1933. Maybe you should wonder whether that is something that might be um, reviewed. Um, in principle, there might be people who uh, must be imprisoned for life uh, because they're so dangerous to society, but if a, a simple uh, physical attack can lead to uh, endless imprisonment, well, something is wrong. This is even worse. With the K Mollard case, you are in the starting point. This is uh, big players in the system. He was brought to the involuntary treatment because in front of the court, he said, this was a divorce case, by the way, that his wife um, had uh, worked for Hypobank washing, laundering money, um, and helped to evade taxes. And he was so mad about this. He was a mechanic. Uh, he is a mechanic uh, specialized in Ferrari, saying that in the in the uh, in the courtroom, he just threw the proof at the uh, judge. Who and this uh, judge was the coach of the handball team, where the the lover of the wife played uh, so uh, he, he said uh, someone who says this can only be crazy and then he went to psychiatry seven years yes and anybody who's uh, familiar with uh, forensic commitment uh, it is reviewed on an annual basis uh, such forensic commitment and it is said again and again, as long as uh, the uh, prisoner has this madness in their head that uh, millions were um, embezzled there, for instance, as long as that have in their head, they're uh, still uh, kept in prison. So, you know, uh, he knew that uh, he has to shut up and then can he be released, um, and he didn't. 
And uh, he found a good um, expert in South Germany, and then he was able to uh, to get a review, a positive review. And so many people looked closely. So many interesting details came to light. Where, for instance, at the uh, headquarters at uh, Hypo Vereinsberg in uh, Nuremberg um, was in cahoots with the elite of uh, Nuremberg. So if the uh, judicial elite uh, um, are in cahoots with this uh, bank, so people knew each other, all of this came to light and uh, there was a uh, an inquest. Um, I read the final report, which was a, years, a few years ago. It's hard to believe, it's impossible to believe that it's coincidental. So this man was actually taken down deliberately. And we have to state everything that he poured in front of the judge at the time, uh, telling him that he was crazy, was true. It proved to be true. There was an internal uh, revision report by Hupo Feinsberg that this was actually um, there were actually uh, clear indications that there was a tax uh, fraud here, but that was certainly, definitely not the only case. This has happened more often. I'm sure there are many such people in this country. They don't speak up anymore because they have been broken. So forensic commitment is a very uh, underhanded um, system. And it's it's uh, Lynch uh, system basically. Um, if you don't know who done it, uh, you get the first black person and hang him. So another case uh, we um, lawyers know th this case. He, he died. One of the few uh, lawyers who wrote a critical book, uh, but he only did that when he was eighty. Uh, you should also think about this. Uh, why do people only um, uh, speak up once uh, their careers are over? Uh, these uh, demigods in black. He is one of uh, the few people who actually wrote down uh, names, names of judges, uh, where they said, okay, they really abused um, defendants. And then Mr. Kachelmann. Uh, justice, uh, law and justice, where he uh, spoke about his experience in Mannheim, and of course, uh, he uh, not only uh, criticizes, he also suggests some reform that's uh, worth reading if you are interested in criminal law. But another important aspect that I definitely want to mention is this uh, uh, state endangering uh, child welfare, it has to do with family law. Uh, really unbelievable what happens here. That's the problem that I have. You can see if you describe your case with Deutsche Bank, you need some time to develop to describe this case so that everybody can understand what's happened here. And with uh, family law cases, in order to describe a single case uh, appropriately, you need at least half an hour. It's really people's fates that uh, would fill entire tomes. Um, and that is a book that describes what's happening here. Very briefly, now, there's a colleague who unfortunately passed away. 
who was very much uh, committed to the, uh, in this context, um, Mr. Zaschet uh, Heidelberg, who suffered a, a fatal accident. He uh, focused exclusively on um, family law. And uh, this was is a book by Norbert Blum. Um, um, and I bought it for five euro. And I really wondered, is it worth reading? But it, it definitely is. It's very well written, so well written that I can't imagine that he did it by himself, but that only confirms. I suppose that legal experts use well-known names to uh, voice their criticism because they don't dare do it themselves because then they won't have any opportunity anymore, any chance to uh, win a case anymore. And that is what lawyers have to um, fear. And I'd like to say that as well. Uh, the legal system is very strong. Lawyers need to cooperate with judges. And if, uh, if the judges don't want to cooperate, then as a lawyer won't go anywhere, no matter what the legal situation is. That's the way it is. And uh, people ask me, why don't you oblige the judges, to the, the courts of law, to do this and this in uh, Corona? Well, simply because they don't do it, period. The legal situation is crystal clear. We can state what we want with uh, the Minster uh, Court. We won't have any success. There are so many examples. They have rejected everything. Uh, mass mandate for uh, children at uh, primary school and preschool. And the one thing that they did uh, repeal was the work ban for prostitutes. But everything that went against children was rejected. And that was always the 13th Senate of uh, Münster. And my understanding was that you never heard with such uh, judges. And I went through this with so many um, states, in so many states in Germany. As far as I know, uh, no uh, court in Germany, with the exception of Judge Detmar, never saw any evidence, never accepted any evidence. Since May of last year, nothing was done in order to start any uh, review of evidence to this day nothing that is probably to be postponed up until after the uh, uh, the federal elections then you can complain about delay tactics yes you can you have that right but no good so uh, you can um, um, simply um, apply to um, present evidence, um, but the judges just refuse to, refuse to see it. So that is the reason, theoretically, we have a right to uh, prove proceedings, but practically there are many judges who think they can judge in their own esteem whether they do that. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, the question whether the traffic light was red or green when the car passed it is accessible. To prove, um, I can listen to witnesses or maybe even have a video that shows it. 
but I have to look at the, the people or the documents and I have to look at that. I can't say I'll just uh, throw the birds uh, birds bones or read and the coffee to to see that's why i said from the start we need the power of the american justice we need the power of that um trial discovery and of course the power of the class actions sorry for the interruption but that's the exact point because you can't do anything anymore in germany uh, if you can have this angle abroad then you can do things uh, in germany through the legal system we won't be able to affect any change people have to realize that unless uh, that there was a landslide in uh, the uh, federal elections and uh debases uh, won 60 percent of the vote then you could do something but uh, and i would bet that overnight a lot of judges would change uh, their party affiliation because they are uh, that would advance their career so people when they go to the uh, elections uh, they should think about whether they should vote for one of those uh, existing or well-established parties um, because they then strengthen these structures and that means that we will have uh, eventually a situation like we have it in uh, have them in australia and it might lead to civil war let me get back to this uh, literature selection, uh, the uh, dual state, Henkel, a legal expert who describes how the state of law was uh, destroyed systematically in the Third Reich. And I spoke with a colleague and she says that leads like you're reading about uh, current uh, legal situation. It's so uh, familiar, it's nothing new, we've seen it all before. So you can, of course, uh, enter into a court, go to court, but you don't get justice anymore. And also uh, about the um, situation in Saxony, she was one of the um, forced prostitutes. And she describes how the minister president uh, behaved, how the justice system, the legal system, um, uh, behaved and uh, that a um, minor who was forced to prostitute herself was uh, portrayed as a prostitute. Uh, I'll give you a couple of uh, sentences very uh, briefly so that people can understand where it uh, leads if the state of law uh, fails. Uh, the NSU process that's an exception where eight lawyers really took a stand and published their uh, final pleas because they believe that in this complex NSU process, never looked at the backgrounds. We can't go into this now. It's too complex, but it was obvious that this terrorist group was uh, built and protected uh, by um, members of the um, secret service that was the impression of the investigators yes one of the chief investigators told me that yeah, a yeah of years exactly ago, personally there's a lot more uh, abbot von harmin um, he has been known as a critic for for decades and he published a book called uh, judges fear of power 
And that's what we see. Uh, judges don't do their job anymore. But I think fear is not the only thing that plays a role here, but also corruption. There are many um, examples that are free of charge. For instance, um, division of labor in the um, uh, party state, then the career of the uh, current president of the Supreme Court, very interesting to read. Then Professor Jungblut uh, described the corona uh, justice system. So there are many articles um, that you can read here. And one is this um, a forensic commitment and it's the um, constitutional justice and uh, the worst is the Supreme Court because we know that in 2020 there were 880 complaints against uh, corona measures three of which were successful but if you read up not in one of these decisions the entire regime was questioned. It was always, uh, you needed to, to have three local judges from Weimar. They questioned whether it uh, is justifiable to send the entire country to a lockdown. So maybe it would be an idea to get rid of the Supreme Court and send uh, uh, these uh, 16 judges uh, to retirement and, and uh, take these three uh, uh, make them they, Supreme they were, Court justices. They were two and one from Walheim, and they really look behind the scenes, actually, yes. Okay, uh, Judge Schleiter, at the end of 2020, uh, filed a complaint, uh, um, uh, 190 pages, and I was really um, enthusiastic about it and after that we had the judgment from Weimar uh, that seems to have inspired them. <coughs> Let me um, quote from it. Um, well, sorry. Uh, it says it all uh, in this uh, complaint, but there was has been no judgment. Yes, yet. I read this. Great, great stuff, great document. Wonderful. Yeah, it sits there, nothing's happening. It's not a, there's no urgency. It's only about people. And so, let it rest. Whether the children are tortured, who cares? And to uh, make it, uh, drive it home to people, if you see it at, on TV, I don't watch TV anymore, but when I did, when the, uh, the Supreme Court came down with a decision, it's a big uh, theater play, basically, and then people think, okay, I can appeal to the Supreme Court and it'll help me, but just check the website of the Supreme Court. Uh, there's a set of statistics there. Wait a minute. So the annual statistics of the Supreme Court, and you only need to click through it. There's a link, um, constitutional complaints, and you can see how many complaints were submitted over the last five years and how many of them were successful. And that is quite striking, the success rate in front of the Supreme Court was consistently at 1.5 to 2%. So 98% are just uh, idiots who have no success. And most uh, complaints are uh, simply 
brushed off the table with a single sentence, um, the uh, constitutional complaint is rejected. It's the only court that uh, can decide whether it will or will not hear a case. That's a dream. I could handle hundreds of uh, constitutional complaints uh, like that every day. I tell my secretary, okay, 2%, uh, let them uh, go through. Take 98 out of 100 and just send this sentence back and the other two, um, uh, my secretary can look at them. Um, it's really obvious that it's consistently only uh, 2%, like as if it's a legal requirement. Then Münster, because I'm in Westphalia here, so this um, state court of Münster is important for me. It's, um, it would just be too much if I went through all these things. All of these things that went against children, uh, mask mandates, testing mandate, etc. All of that was approved, but when it was about banning uh, sexual services in uh, brothels and similar institutions, then uh, the higher court actually said we have to st um, stop these bans. This is an unacceptable. Maybe we should mention the names of these uh, judges. Richter Sandra Strauch Fülse since 2021 and Richter uh, Judge Stocksmeyer. I can only tell them uh, shame on you, shame on you. What you did there is really absolutely unbelievable. There's a great uh, contrast here. On one side, uh, the welfare of children doesn't play any role, so that's where this title of the book, uh, of the book you just mentioned is uh, good. But prostitution, prostitution, that has to be regulated and that has to be looked at. Exactly, I don't know, I don't know. Well, or other point, the selection of uh, cases to be heard the Attorney General, uh, several um, complaints were submitted um, and I did the same myself. Um, criminal charges that were um, submitted for genocide and whatever in the context of the um, vaccination campaign. And what's so stark is that if you submit a criminal charge with the uh, Attorney General because of um, genocide or um, crimes against humanity, he sends you some uh, piece of paper that the Attorney General is not responsible uh, to hear that kind of case or handle such case, and please contact the uh, competent authorities. And then you can write back and it says in uh, Article 120 of the uh, court uh, law, uh, court constitution court uh, law, that the uh, Attorney General is responsible, is competent here. Who else? A local uh, attorney, a uh, local public prosecutor? So the highest pro public prosecutor, that's the Attorney General. That even says it on the homepage 
that he is competent, who else? But he simply rejects it. And simply by saying, uh, it's not my field of competence, if the uh, court competence, that's uh, Kafka Square. Like if, what will he, uh, what will he write to others? If he, if he, if that's his response to um, a lawyer, he'll probably tell a common citizen, "Well, I don't exist. I'm only an illusion." Uh, I don't know. With the um, attorney generals of the states, it's not uh, no different. Uh, Matthias Schmidt uh, sent his criminal uh, charge to all state uh, attorney generals uh, for. Uh, physical injury, physical harm because of this vaccination campaign and he um, um, corroborated it on 50, 60 pages. He said it's a dangerous vaccine, uh, vaccine um, in inverted commas. Um, it makes people ill, it kills people. You have to stop it immediately and everybody involved is committing a crime. And he also said that uh, the public advertising is uh, contrary to the of um, medication advertising act and as far as i know not a single state has uh, started proceedings here i don't know if it will ever happen i haven't heard of it yet but on the other hand when uh, uh, judge ditmar in weimar protects children then uh, oh we have this paragraph never was applied um, has been in existence for 50 years um, because as a public prosecutor you're not too um, popular if you uh, prosecute your own uh, kind but uh, maybe we uh, uh, we uh, try to get him for perversion of law no he's doing his job then his uh, friends are attacked and you couldn't make it up and minister dirk adams uh, is probably also co-responsible for this and i hope people remember that when they go to uh, vote on on sunday and you're allowed to insult anyone who criticizes uh, this um, um nonsense corona nonsense and jessica eskins uh, co-chair of the spd uh, said publicly that everyone uh, who criticizes corona measures are covid idiots um, but no um, proceedings against her that's just a personal opinion i really thought about these cases here uh, I selected, selected a few, but we could easily spend the next half hour to look into one of these cases in appropriate detail. But, but to summarize it, the uh, youth offices are very powerful, um, exerted, and sometimes do a very um, bad business that way. You can find the Gurgly case on the internet. Uh, just Google it. That was a father who fought for years to uh, for his right to uh, a visitation uh, with his uh, children um, and that is one of many uh, where uh, parents are um, harassed uh, to the detriment of the children and there were cases here in berlin where a, a youth office um, 
um, established contacts to um, uh, pedophiles for decades or in uh, Gelsenkirchen. I don't know to what extent it has been uh, legally verified. They are uh, accused of having sending children uh, who couldn't be housed anymore because they were uh, overrun uh, to Hungary. It's madness. And uh, that's the kind of thing that happens here. There's a lot of money is made here. It's an industry where more than 40 billion are turned over every year. <coughs> Experts earn a lot of money. Uh, um, those uh, institutions for child welfare earn a lot of money. <coughs> and then experts who work on behalf of courts of justice who get 30,000 euro or more per expert opinion. And that is then uh, charged to the, to the party that uh, is to be steamrolled here. I mean, who can foot that bill, 30,000 euro? But I hope that with this uh, election that we have now will lead to a little bit of more common sense in the um, uh, federal parliament, even if we won't have uh, a complete turnaround now, but maybe a little bit of common sense would be uh, helpful so that we can have some reforms. There is enough ideas around I, I forward them i can't really talk about them it's so much that needs to be changed we can't do it with little steps i think the legal system needs to be completely rebuilt from scratch it's really um it's structurally incompetent now a lot of influence has to be eliminated so that the courts look at the law only politics have no uh, issue there uh, business even less the courts must become independent again we know how justicia is shown with her uh, blindfold and her sword but if we uh, show her the way she uh, acts now she uh, should wear a uh, freemason's uh, gown and um, Instead of a, a sword, she needs a club, so uh, everybody gets clubbered who believes that uh, they have a right, uh, that any rights. So Yusisia has to be redressed, so she comes along as a decent girl anymore, uh, and no longer as a uh, the prostitute of politicians and business. Perversion of the law is 10 times against the law, 100 times against any decency, and a 1,000 times against God. That's my personal belief. Because that is a very important aspect. Legal, uh, the, the peace in every country depends on the rule of law. And we can't see that where corona measures are imposed anymore. Uh, and uh, the judges should think about what they're doing to the country. I heard this nihilistic uh, statement, nobody will help us, there will be no messiah. I wonder, how do they know? Did they, uh, do they have a phone link with uh, Jesus? Uh, did 
God uh, appear to them and uh, tell them. So there are many people who still believe that the uh, holy books say, be they Muslims or Christians, uh, Buddhists or Hinduists, uh, I can tell you, I looked at it in detail, any, uh, every religion believes that there is something coming down the line, that there is a judgment day and we'll all have to face our responsibility then. And I think those people who uh, hold office now, who um, administer justice and power, they're failing now and they have to ask themselves if they really wish to face the Lord this way. That is their personal problem, it's not your problem, it's not our problem, or Vivian's, uh, Vivian's problem. problem. It is the fate and the problem of those who behave the way they do, not only in Germany, but across the world. Very briefly only, I won't go into concrete uh, suggestions for reform, We'll have to take another opportunity for that. The next guest is waiting, but I think, and uh, I've uh, feared the worst, you, you topped it, you went over it, and I have heard a lot of this. I think it's extremely important that these things are brought to light. That's the only benefit of this uh, pandemic that it is all looked at and the light is shine on this and because this is one of the crucially important things no problem you can say you don't even know me i hope i didn't embarrass you too much but you know it's really about people's lives and i know that uh, some colleagues really uh, broke um, they resignate you can get ill and that also affects lawyers we're only very few lawyers who uh, look at this system critically of more than 65,000. We're talking of 100, 200, 300 maybe. And they're fighting with uh, windmills. And of course, we could extend the criticism to our colleagues, our very colleagues. Where are they? Where's the chambers of... Um, uh, the, the uh, lawyers uh, chambers the renowned legal magazines they're all involved it's always calls to support uh, the vaccine uh, vaccination campaign and i think it's really appalling what's happening here and we really have to say it quite clearly we can't go on like this if this continues the entire social order will collapse and you heard it uh, back at the time, we need to get connected. It's the fastest possible, it's the only opportunity. Here in this country and internationally, and things are evolving, even in Canada, even in Australia. Wilfried, I, 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 I don't want to say it's fun, but uh, I would really like to uh, go in detail here. We would have a lot to share. We could look at all the cases and you would see it's not individual cases. Well, I have so many individual cases slated uh, that take half an hour each, uh, small cases, but also where you're really gobsmacked. And we need maybe to continue that some other time. Well, maybe we can have a special session on this, but I think we won't have to wait until Judgment Day to uh, hold people responsible. Oh, we can't oh, wait for it so long. It may be just around the corner. 
So, well, well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the large designs are, but uh, I'm sure he has one. And that is the core problem, the problem of power. We need, we would have to break the power. And I uh, doubt that people can still do this. Um, the legal system is very powerful in all the countries of the world. If the if you control the legal system, you control the country. That's the way it is. And I have my doubts if you can simply break it from external, uh, from outside or with the federal elections. Uh, we'll see what happens. We're witnesses of these times. Well, we'll make sure that the right things happen. Exactly. That's all we can do. Winfried, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for the invitation. And I wish you all uh, the strength to continue your work. I know it's a difficult job to do. We can do it. We can do it. Yes, we'll manage. We'll manage. Well, it's really a fight on the for the heads and the hearts and uh, people have to know what's going on otherwise you can't find uh, an informed decision i'd like to take the opportunity we have developed a little mini newspaper that you can print out and share and distribute and like to ask everyone to do that we'll uh, also try to do create a list um, to where you can enter, where you shared it. It's on uh, 2020news.de. It's a A3 version at the moment to print out in copy shop, and that is psychologically uh, consulted so that it is able to break the hypnosis barrier and really um, get people to look at the topics. There is going to be an A4 uh, sized version which you can print out at home and uh, give to your neighbors. Go out and uh, sh um, share them. So now we uh, not only we want to convince uh, the others, but the others want to convince us in some way or manipulate us because there is not much of argument uh, it follows interesting structures so that things are just said and uh, repeated and repeated and um, um, suggestions are made uh, to suggest connections where they are not and we have connie meyer with us now who looked into the topic of the so-called uh, conspirational theorists which are around every corner and how they've been framed and very interesting things turned up also on an European level. Mr. Maya, are you with us? Yes, yes, I am. Can you hear me? Okay, great. Well, hello, once, once again. I wanted to report about the network around Pierre Lamberti and in the beginning of last year, I noted that she turns up in all media all of a sudden. And as I looked at Mr. Fidesz podcast every now and again, and I knew a couple of people, I noted that she works together with these people as well in this compact network, which is established on a European uh, or uh, subsidized on a European uh funding it stands for your comparative analysis of conspiracy theorists and that is a network of about 130 150 scientists and 
I said I saw her in the media and so I checked um, what how do they work scientifically and what I noted was that maybe I could just uh, briefly present this here if I may share my screen can you explain what does she do well Miss Lamberti is a social social psychologist a PhD um, in Mainz uh, with Professor Imhoff we expect we suppose it's not declared and she is he's got a PhD scholarship from Friedrich Ebert uh, Foundation and at the same time she has got a fellowship of the Minerva Foundation so she uh, has been in the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung with the funded from them uh, since 2002 and um, the um, other fellowship was from April to from April 2019 and there is this so-called double um, uh, double um, financing prohibition and her funding is never mentioned in any of the articles there is one only where both fundings are mentioned but um, in which the the second version of this article it has been deleted and it was only a preprint so it was never published in any journal and so these are things that i noted for example i noted that she never although it says in the guidelines um, that the different journals say that uh, they uh, uncover they disclose their uh, promotional um, relationships she communicates a lot with professor imhoff but she never says so and uh, she's also paid by friedrich ebert stiftung for her research work so that should be mentioned as well um, if uh, as long as this article has to do with her doctoral work but then i wonder how she finds the time to write all these articles which are not related to a phd work she's been uh, a phd graduate since 2016 if i know right she has the fellowship since uh, three years so i think that's the maximum time what does she do? What is I, I don't know her. Is that somebody who um, appears in the media and uh, who tries to uh, or give support to uh, call all critics to be Nazis and right-wing extremists? She is one of these many experts that uh, pop up to declare that the corona measures or the critics of the measures are all somehow Nazi Nazi right-wing yes they are conspiracy theorists and uh, they uh, that may lead to uh, violence in I think in one of the articles I don't know whether it was Stuttgart or Zeitung um that this will necessarily lead to violence uh, 
Well, whatever. So she uh, tries to call those uh, uh, the the critics or the measures to be uh, violent and she calls on violence against them. I can't say if she calls for violence really, but at the beginning of the year, for example, she participated in a web seminar hosted by Rheinland Feldsch's uh, Chamber for Psychotherapists and there it was said that these uh, conspiracy mentality is what they say it's a pathologic uh, syndrome that the, the miss lamberti in the beginning of the year had a um, published an article together with mr imhoff um, in a psychotherapeutic magazine where she uh, gave instructional theory uh, therapy instructions on how to deal with um, conspiracy theorists. So uh, this is quite an approach um, to uh, uh, call people conspiracy theorists. There is also a an article of Mr. Imhoff with uh, together with Martin Bruder, who is used as the fundamental basis uh, for the studies, what questions are asked, how they are conducted, and what the questionnaires are. And if you look at the questionnaires, then there are questions like, I'll need to look this up. You can see, you can find questions like, or statements rather, that I can't find it now. I'm just, let me look it up. For example, international intelligence agencies have their hands in our everyday life to a much larger degree than people assume. That is a statement that you can only undersign after all what uh, we have heard from Edward Snowden. We are continuously monitored the international uh, intelligence services um, if you have an internet service it's all uh, monitored by the nsa that's an extent of um, involving in personal lives where you can only answer this question with yes but if you do so then uh, that counts for a criteria of you being a conspiracy theorist. That's one thing. And the other thing I looked at was the situational behavior because there are some trespass uh, values that show that we have uh, citation cartels here. And for example, According to Professor Joannidis, ah, uh, who looked at the WHO, looking at scientific work. So if that uh, self-quotation is uh, above 25%, you have to have a 
a close look at something. And if you check this for Pilamberti, she is just below 25%. But if she, uh, if you inv um, include all her co-authors and the people who quote her from the compact network, then you are at 40, 45% of the quotes which uh, are only from this network alone. And another thing that's interesting, and we'll, we'll skip that today for the due to time questions. I've got the data for that. However, I can share that with you and you can give that to someone who could uh, calculate it. Do you have certain patterns, cluster effects? So I looked at I looked at what journals she was uh, quoted in or what journals she is published in and who quotes her and who is in the editing rooms of these uh, journals. So there is articles that she wrote where actually certain conflicts of interest would have to be disclosed apart from the financial funding, but also the institutional um, cooperation in compact, which is not mentioned anywhere. And uh, although this compact network is uh, brings out a halftime report, a progress report with a list of articles, about nine of them, two of uh, Miss Lamberti and uh, these are labeled as products of the compact network. But if you look at the article itself, it is never pointed out that this is the case, neither in the acknowledgments nor in the conflict of interest nor elsewhere. So it is not mentioned, although it must have been mentioned. Of course, it's possible that this is not done because this article formally so there's formal criteria of this uh, cross association that operate that network. So cost is that foundation that gives the money, gets the money from the EU Commission, and then it decides what projects it will support. And Compact is one of uh, thousands. And then there is an official document um, listing out the funding conditions for scientific publication, and that is the so-called Vadimekom. That's what the document is called. And I think in point 10.3, it is scientific publications. And then it says for an article to be of one of these projects to be uh, a cost article, uh, which is the association with every project having a number in compact as CA15101. Uh, that's the number of that project. And then that uh, lists the conditions um, that have to be fulfilled for that to be mentioned as such. And it says that it has to have at least three different authors from three different member countries that need to be represented here. And in the case of the Lombertica article, which is that second report, progress report, this is not the case because she only wrote it together with Mr. Imhoff. It's only two and both of them are from Germany and she's even from the same institute. She seems to be doing a PhD with him. So this article 
implies to be a network financed um, um, article, but it doesn't fulfill the conditions. Is that compact network? I've just checked the, this up, which, for example, for 17th of November 21, um, has a conference which typically is about uh, hate, hatred uh, and uh, conflicts and uh, conspirations, not my business. These are the people. Yeah, I don't know about that. They have thousands of. It says Global Compact Network Germany. Now, this is not the one. Conspiracy3.eu seem to be closely related. Uh, there seem to be loads of people running around doing that. I don't know what, I haven't heard of what you have been saying so far, but um, the uh, interesting point here in this progress report is that it lists articles. So it says these articles were a publication, cost publications for which the network was necessary necessary means without this network they wouldn't have been created but if you look at some of the articles they have a publication date which was prior to the kickoff date so that means certain articles were recycled that means they took articles that were published before or written before the official start of the compact network published and one of these is one of these articles is called measuring belief in conspiracy theories validation of a french and indian single item scale so this was prepared by anthony lanthion Dominic Müller, Cécile Noir, and Karen M. Douglas. Karen M. Douglas is also part of Compact. The interesting point here is, um, was um, the handling server was Oliver Klein from Brussels. He is also part of Compact. And the point is that Compact, at the point in time when this article was published, it was published in the International Review of Social Psychology, where uh, Mr. Klein is the leading editor, editor-in-chief, interestingly enough, was published already on the 4th of February 2016, while the Memorandum of Understanding of Compact says that it was founded on the 1st of April only. So that means we have uh, possibly from this Imhoff um, a theory, a theory um, that unites all these uh, conspiration, conspiratorial theorists, and now they try to work scientifically to cooperate, but uh, quote each other to such a degree that they are uh, recredible, which is not sustained by. Well, you, you called it a citing cartel, a quotation cartel, and uh, so they push each other to get credible from the outside. I had this 
Um, Fighting Swans, I think, it was in um, the uh, a wave against me when we founded the party. I think there was a sort called Jonas Rees or Rees, who's part of that network, who was involved, and he was asked. Um, I think the conspiracy theorists, what was going on with them, and then he said that these are not um, crazy guys on the fringes of the society, but these are dangerous people from the midst of society. And I wondered where he got that finding from, possibly from this fictitious uh, incestuous um, uh, way of work. So it's a pseudo-scientific uh, network uh, that gives itself a scientific uh, tinge, but is completely unscientific uh, to deceive people, because if they don't even abide by uh, the principles of self-quoting, well, what uh, should you think of it? Exactly. It's not just uh, self-quoting. I have statistically analyzed this. It's about the sources that they use as well. So if you look at the journals where these articles were published, where there's at least one compact member in the editorial team, they have quite um, clear patterns because there's clusters that do not overlap. So in the journals in which compact members are editors, the share of compact sources, the sources that are used, the references that are used, is lower than in the journals where no compact uh, member is uh, in the editorial team. And one may say this proves the opposite, but it doesn't, because as these clusters are statistically visible, you can do variance analyses and so on, I did that, and you can see that these groups, these clusters, significantly differ from each other. And then you wonder why. Why do they do that? And one reason could be that in those journals where there's no compact member in the editorial team, um, looks at the literature to advertise it. Now, this is not really successful in the end, maybe, because these journals um, are staffed with people who see this and say, well, I'd rather not quote that. Um, I don't know where this originates from. But we can say that, as I said, could be pointing at this, that these people try to gain some significance beyond the network well possible as an explanation however they don't seem to be succeeding very well well my impression sorry so they don't have this attention to what extent can we say now how much attention do they get outside of their bubble well they have a lot of attention i would say you have to differentiate between the uh, attention in the academic field and in the public field or in the published field. And uh, you have to look at, since the beginning of the year, Ms. Lamberti has a leading 
positioned in CMOS, Center for Monitoring and Analysis. And for that, she got the uh, sum of uh, two and a half, two point eight million funding. I don't think she would have got that if uh, she hadn't been passed around in all the media. So that's the effect that uh, comes up with this. These people appear in the media because they have certain connections to people. For example, the Compact Network describes itself as um, cooperating with certain stakeholders. Who are the stakeholders? These are the policymakers and it's the media, it is companies and it is, and that's only mentioned in a single sentence, they are working with people of the secret services. And in order to, as they say themselves, I can read this out here, a specific focus of this action will therefore to be con to consider the policy and uh, implication of research into conspiracy theories and uh, allow effective documentation and training for European intelligence agencies. This word comes up against conspiracy rumors. The action will work closely with a policymaker to consider what can and should be done about conspiracism with a particular focus on how conspiracy theories and then there's a lot of points following that. But then we can really cut the whole thing short and say um, this is one of the operators of the dirty work of Mr. Globals, uh, to use uh, Kirsten Austin Fitz's term. So they're all involved in the manipulation of the public and defamation of those who criticize the public uh, policy line. Yes, I actually think it is not so much triggered by Mr. Imhoff, but rather by Mr. Professor Buddha. He was the vice chair of Compact. Interestingly, at the end of September uh, a year ago, he got the approval from the European Research Council for another project, which is called PACT, P-A-C-T, without the com, and that uh, will address the same topics, but if you go to that page from the European Commission, they link to that work, to work of that compact network, and personally thank Professor Buta for his work, although he was only vice chair, and actually Peter Knight, he's one of his co-authors, would be the chair, but Peter Knight is not mentioned. So they thank the vice chair, but not the chair of the action. And uh, I think that's a bit curious and uh, or, or strange. And uh, Professor Butter gets the funding from the European Research Council. So we can expect massive economic interests uh, behind uh, this research. Yes, maybe one short thing. Um, they work uh, together with companies to polish their image uh, and um, early middle last year there was one of these 
scientists. I think Emilia Stano is her name. She's Italian. She was on the Food and Science Festival. Simona Stano was her name. And she spoke there. But the Food and Science Festival in Italy has the logotype of a, a grain which uh, transforms into a DNA string. And the interesting part is that one of the partners of this festival is Confagricultura, which is a uh, cooperation of large agricultural players that try to introduce OGMs to Italy. So that is um, the direction it goes. It goes uh, to do some image polishing for OGMs, new technologies, uh, food science, all of these things. That is what uh, this is all about. So it's a network that um, even outside of this conspiracy theory tries to impose industrial interests for instance, um, undermining um, the uh, need or the, the wish uh, for the non-medically, uh, non-genetically modified foodstuffs. Yes, Ms. Stano uh, held a seminar. We can look at the posters of the students and it is about myth busting. So one of the myths is the myth of the natural. So uh, organic is uh, is not so organic. Uh, so all these organic industry is very industrial. Where you sometimes wonder is that as organic organic as it seems? But here, this is rather towards the OGMs are really part of the nature and OGMs. Um, are a contribution to biodiversity. That is the direction that goes, and that is quite uh, questionable, I would think. And maybe, maybe one more point that uh, is interesting as we're talking about business. Miss Lamberti writes on a media outlet which I would call scientific journalism is called the conversation and that is founded by a strategic partner Bill and Melinda Gates uh, foundation and as a network partner it's another foundation calling the falling walls which is of course um, a reference to the Berlin Wall. I think they are located in Berlin. And if you look at the partners there, it's exactly the same partners that are in the World Health Summit, uh, Boehringer, Ingelheim and so on, Bayer, BSF, they're all there. And so the front man, uh, which they have, uh, that's just the foundation, but behind the foundation, that's it. Yeah, well, that's quite obvious um, that the usual suspects here. Well, it's always important to know who's behind the people who um, have froth in their mouths and who are um, actually complaining about us. It. It's always the same people. Okay. 
So we have some more findings. Thank you very much, Mr. Maya. Thank you. Well, then I wish you a nice weekend. Well, same to you. Well, thank you. We have Dr. Wolfgang Wodak now. Wolfgang, you um, have the floor now. You can tell us something about myocarditis with young men, and then you'll speak about aspiration. We had different uh, requests and uh, pointers there. Well, thank you. Yes, I had a number of um, consultancies in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern uh, on the go, basically. And most questions that I got was uh, were on the uh, vaccination, the so-called vaccination. People are under pressure if they want to continue working, they need to get vaccinated, or if they want to uh, receive continued payment of pay, of, of their wages um, in the event of sick leave, uh, they run into problems there. So maybe I can start with a, a questions on myocarditis. We see that it's um, that uh, there are many more complications with young men after the vaccination, and that is obviously observed with any of the vaccines, no matter which one you receive. And it's mostly young men who get this uh, myocarditis. It's an inflammation of the heart, uh, affecting um, potentially affecting different parts of the um, heart. The um, heart, the skin of the heart, um, or other parts, um, the muscle, etc. And uh, the people affected will have uh, will, be, uh, will have shortness of breath, sometimes uh, pain in the chest, and then oftentimes uh, they are um, examined. The ECG, you can see something, and uh, you can see uh, in the development that it actually uh, is a ca causal link with the injection, and then you wonder. Why do uh, young men, strong young men, uh, get these complications? And I had a, a theory that I um, discussed with a cardiologist, and I think uh, we'll have to look into this, whether this is the case. The young men get the uh, vaccination uh, just like everybody else. They get in the delta muscle, which is in the shoulder. With young men, it is much stronger than with a uh, lady in the um, uh, in a nursing home, an elderly lady in a nursing home who can hardly lift her uh, arm. So the muscle in a young man is well um, developed. Um, the supply with blood is very well. Um, and uh, it's then possible that um, the injection is not administered into the muscle tissue, but into a, a vein. And it is uh, recommended by WHO, um, strangely enough, um, that you don't need to aspirate uh, before you inject uh, the vaccine. 
Um, I learned, every doctor learns, every uh, nurse learns that you have to be careful uh, not to inject a uh, medication that is supposed to be injected into the muscle. It uh, uh, shouldn't go into the vein and you have to be careful not to put it in the vein. And in order to do that, uh, to, ver to verify that you're not uh, injecting into a vein, before you press the contents of the uh, syringe into uh, the person, into the patient, you have to pull the syringe a bit, uh, pull on it a bit to uh, see whether you um, take in blood. If uh, you see blood going into the syringe, then you're in the wrong position. So that's an important measure to uh, avoid injecting into the wrong tissue. And now it's actually deliberately recommended not to do that, which is kind of surprising. It's not even said why. All of a sudden, this important basic rule is no longer to be uh, adhered to. And that means um, that uh, with some patients, um, the particles are um, accidentally injected into the bloodstream. Young men have stronger arms with uh, larger veins, and so with young men it's more likely to accidentally hit a vein. And if this happens, if these uh, particles with the mRNA uh, or the vectors are injected into the bloodstream, then like any uh, uh, blood in the veins go to um, the uh, right um, heart atrium, they can get into contact with the uh, internal wall of the heart, can penetrate the cells, can create a reaction then. So the cells in the heart um, start uh, building these spike proteins, which leads to an infection, then, to an um, inflammation then. In the right atrium, there is some a very important tissue, the so-called sinus node, that is basically our natural pacemaker that allows the heart to beat faster or slower as required, and that if it is uh, disturbed, you can have uh, arrhythmia. And there were many uh, reports of uh, sportive uh, people, mostly men, suddenly dropped dead. That's usually happens um, with a sudden heart death through arrhythmia. And if the sinus node is irritated, uh, then this is an event that would happen quite uh, fast after the injection, on the first day or the second day after the injection. It is quite possible that suddenly you get arrhythmia and uh, lose consciousness. Your heart starts uh, fibrillating. And this can lead to um, a um, acute cardiac death. Who, who gave you that instruction? I didn't catch that. Who said don't aspirate? The WHO, the RKI, or who? Both. Both. The RKI uh, published it, but also um, WHO. Does that make any sense? Is there any reason for that? No, there isn't. It'd be important. This is uh, juridically that's very important. We are right in the um, deliberate uh, immoral behavior here. I think it's very important too uh, because there have been 
studies that looked into this, uh, there was a uh, uh, an attempt to determine how often uh, you hit the bloodstream when you uh, inject into the um, into this muscle, and that's uh, the finding is five to ten percent of all injections. So if you aspirate, you'll be uh, in a vein in five to ten percent. Then you have to reposition the uh, needle. If you don't aspirate, you're in um, a vein in five to ten percent as well, but you just don't notice. And then you inject into a, into a vein, and that can lead to these modifications within the heart, uh, heart inflammation. Um, um, and uh, all those complications that lead to arrhythmia. And the uh, curious thing is that the early symptoms aren't allocated to the um, injection. It is not um, um, considered a complication of the vaccination. They look back 14 days, so um, it might be caused by something two weeks ago, and then it can't be caused by the um, uh, injection. That's quite... Now where do these 14 days come from? These This fortnight uh, comes from uh, EMA, I think. Those are the... Uh, side effects that are recognized and that are supposed to be reported. And I haven't really uh, read why it is. I, uh, I was told that Ima uh, came that up with this. That can't be from them only. It's, and the same applies in the US. So that can only come from the WHO then. Well, they um, probably coordinate what they do. I can't tell. I'm afraid I can't. That's an absurd, uh, arbitrary um, decision. You should do everything until a certain point uh, in time yeah. or whatever. Would be more logic. They probably think of immunological um, consequences only, and that takes a while for the spikes to be formed, etc. And I, I can't tell you what the reasoning is, is behind it. Obvious, or am I completely wrong here? That exactly what we're talking about now, what you have been reporting, myocarditis. That this is in many cases uh, affected uh, immediately after the vaccination yes if you uh, follow up on the bloodstream uh, what else can happen with this intravenous injection of these substances it goes to the right uh, atrium uh, it doesn't have much time and it's uh, then uh, from the right heart chamber i'm sorry it doesn't have as much uh, time as in the atrium and then it goes into the lung and the lung arteria uh, that uh, leads uh, the uh, uh, the blood to the uh, capillaries they become ever finer and the blood moves very slowly here and the nanoparticles that didn't get stuck in the heart will get stuck in the lung and in the lung if uh, you have these um, infectious in uh, these inflammations and immunological uh, reactions then it's really inflammation it's an immunological process it has nothing to do with viruses but it looks uh, the same as if the lung reacts to coronaviruses you have the same uh, picture if you have coronaviruses in the bloodstream so some of these 
a diagnosis that uh, somebody, somebody received the vaccination and they get corona after all, then that's uh, simply because of the vaccination. Um, because the coronavirus um, cause the same damage when they somehow get into uh, the bloodstream. That's why we have these rare, dangerous uh, cases of corona. And uh, the upshot is that people can, uh, can't breathe very well. Usually those uh, nanoparticles go into just a part of the lung, not the whole lung at a time. And then they uh, start these uh, spike proteins, those uh, immuno reactions if that happened for the second time uh, after the second injection and if you have the spike building uh, triggered faster stronger than larger parts of the lung can be affected the more of the lung is affected the less you could breathe the lung is a luxury organ that is we can um, remove half a lung um, you, that was uh, done in the past in uh, treatment of tuberculosis. I did it with my tuberculosis uh, patients and uh, you uh, verify first, but normally you can uh, take out half a lung, you can live uh, like that, it's no problem. But if you have uh, too much of this modification, um, if it spreads, becomes more generalized, then you can, uh, you have increasing shortness of breath. Uh, of breath. And if you have this caused by microthrombosis, um, by um, the inflammation um, in the lung where the spikes uh, uh, occur, it may not be, they might not feel that it's due to the inflammation, to the uh, injection. And uh, after a while, um, the rest of the lung takes over. Some smokers, as I said, the lung is a luxury uh, organ. Some smokers have to spend 30 years before they notice that they're destroying their lungs. So we only uh, we have a lung volume that we only use when we uh, exert ourselves. When we walk, we only need part of the lung. So uh, those people may not notice that a large part of their lungs has been damaged. That is to be expected if it is injected into the vein. And that is... Uh, in five to ten percent of all cases of injections that is a very serious side effect that is hard to diagnose you can do that if you uh, use x-rays um, but that is more effort and it's not done it's not a routine examination if you did then you'd probably find with many people that part of their lungs have been decommissioned and that their um, performance capability has been permanently damaged. So because the lung is one of the organs that doesn't regenerate, does it? That's right. Um, it grows until um, you reach the age of 25 or so, but um, as you grow older, it doesn't. And um, the part that isn't... Um, um, supplied with blood properly anymore will shrivel away than the other um, parts of the lung expand a bit, uh, but the performance capability is I limited. To, I have to think about asthmatic people, they are dependent on their spray, so could the consequences um, be compensated or masked by using a spray and they don't go to see the doctor? 
and the finding is uh, delayed. I can imagine that anybody with a pre-damaged lung, uh, you have to distinguish between a chronically uh, inflamed lung and a hyperreactive uh, bronchial um, mucus tissue. If you have asthma and you use a spray, then the spray helps the bronchia, uh, not the alveoles. It helps further up in the uh, bronchiole and the um, upper respiratory tract. And you can't uh, use that to compensate for damaged, for destroyed lung tissue. You can't um, uh, improve that anymore. You can um, ease the supply of bras with certain medications, but they're only for acute um, cases, not for permanent use. If you have a, a burden on the right part of the heart that the, the um, blood doesn't go through the lung so easily, then the right part of the heart has to um, overexert itself, and that can lead to a um, accumulation of blood uh, between the heart and the lung, and that leads to uh, symptoms that can be observed, that can be measured. If you have a um, such a uh, extra burden uh, on the right uh, part of the um, heart, the right ventricular load, um, then you can. Um, do it. Uh, Viagra, for instance, is used to expand the uh, alveolar, but that's only by the uh, way. Um, other medication is being uh, tried to see uh, to see if the arteries in the lung can be expanded. But those are things that come really too late. Um, the damage has been the damage has been done. The tissue is damaged. And uh, most people aren't as uh, strong anymore as they were. So with respect to the sportsmen who were affected, that would uh, mean for them and apply for them. And that uh, nursing home where we have that whistleblower situation in Berlin, I think of the 31 vaccinated ladies and gentlemen, eight died briefly after the vaccination and the whistleblowers said that they, the ones who died very quickly um, had their heads down at night and had no power and, uh, anymore and uh, just uh, sagged together and died quickly after only a couple of days. That must have been this kind of process, mustn't it? If it goes into the vein, uh, it goes to the right part of the heart and then it goes to the lung and then it goes into the brain. But it's quite possible that people um, have it go into the sinus uh, veins in the brain and then that you have some process and you die like as if it was a stroke. Well, so just to uh, clarify this, I know it for myself, not, not, not because I'm a doctor, because I um, worked at the um, respective institute at my university on the legal this aspiration 
Aspiring is uh, absolutely necessary. And now there's an instruction saying it shouldn't be done, or was it say, or does it say it's not necessary? It um, has a recommendation effect. Uh, if this is published by the Robert Koch Institute or state institutions, they don't. The, the doctors don't have to do it, but um, it's recommended that they do. So. Physicians can uh, fall back on this. If uh, somebody complains that they didn't do the right thing, um, then they can say, oh, Robert Koch Institute said, I don't have to aspirate. I have a second question that is asked very often. That's people who say, what about this new vaccine that's coming that doesn't uh, have a spike proteins that, that doesn't make us produce them where parts of spike proteins uh, are included already uh, by by uh, well that this vaccine that comes from the US that will be uh, authorized soon enough those are uh, ready-made antigens um, where our cells don't start making their own uh, spikes the antigens are injected into the muscle so some of that can go into the vein as well so what i just mentioned uh, can happen of course spikes if they come into the get into the bloodstream they're toxic and lead to thrombosis so they can do that as well uh, just like as if the spikes are made by ourselves but uh, what's a big risk with these uh, corona antigens that has been seen uh, when the vaccine against SARS-CoV-1 was developed in 2004 when these animal uh, experiments were uh, performed uh, where the animals died when they were confronted with the uh, uh, viruses they were first vaccinated and then they were exposed so they inhaled the viruses so they got them where they normally get them not via an injection to the back door but where they normally uh, get them and this also led to this antigen reactions so arrhythmia and all that sort of thing so these animals died then so this vaccine that uses parts of um, dead viruses then you won't be helpful because back then we had the same thing it was also dead parts of viruses so you're not protected you need to have long uh, lines long series of animal tests um, and all of that against the background that this these vaccines so-called vaccines A hundred and forty to hundred twenty hundred and forty uh, people had to be injected in order to have a single um, PCR uh, reaction with uh, symptoms uh, to be prevented. That's absolutely um, irrational. It's disproportionate. If you look at the um, benefit damage ratio uh, it's incredible that this was actually accepted um, they always say 45 percent of efficacy or 95 efficacy they just ignore the 45,000 people who got the vaccine they only uh, compare the people who got uh, symptoms so you see uh, those 160 people who weren't uh, weren't 
vaccinated and uh, developed uh, symptoms. But in order to protect those people, you had to dispense 20,000 injections. That's a laugh laughably small efficacy. It's below 1%. And what we see now in terms of side effects, um, the numbers of complications and damage uh, damages are much higher. I uh, saw a uh, study from the UK yesterday, and they uh, totted up the figures, and they say that much, many more people die from the vaccination than from uh, COVID-19. That's really madness what's being done there. It has to be discontinued immediately. We must not oblige people to do this. And that uh, politicians uh, should oblige people to do that, that's worse than racketeering by the mafia. It's a disaster. We have to change it, stop it with all the means available. We can try to take a step in the right way, in the right direction on Sunday, but I think it is going to carry on until we see the end of the the light at the end of the tunnel madness is so obvious you, you can't cover it up anymore neither here not in the us not in any other country it makes people suspicious and this is why the pressure is increased why there's weeks of vaccination or uh, blitz blitzkrieg actions uh, things like that people who don't want to do it by now they are not going to do it and well, the problem is that um, pressure is exerted on them now with um, the uh, discontinuation of uh, wage payments in the event of uh, sickness and uh, the fact that they have to declare their vaccination status to em employers um, is really monstrous um, against the background of all those problems that it's really impossible to understand this ever anymore. I can understand that very well. It's the great opportunity now to get all the research staff who were not allowed to do any gene experiments in 20 years past where strong regulation ethic community ethic commission stopped this it's always been the case gene therapy was only allowed in very rare cases um, with, with careful inspection and that takes years normally until this is uh, authorized and now Within short time, uh, there was a mass therapy uh, brought out and we are subjected to it, which is just as um, risky, as harmful as a uh, gene therapy. It's only called something else. It's quite undisputed fact. And uh, this, of course, has a very, very long uh, would need a very long um, clinical study and I stand this because these people who wanted to do this for many years who wanted to use this um, method which is so easy to use and you can use it for any uh, sickness to improve human performance whatever uh, crazy ideas they have they are in the starting blocks and they want to run for it the only thing that is missing is the clinical studies and for that we need the health data of the people we have to they have to check what the 
um, injection does, what, what the effect is. And this is what Mr. Stan prepared for very well with the health insurances, the, there is no confidentiality anymore, the digital <coughs> the, um, vaccination passport, all of these are collected and um, privately administered. It's a private company. Uh, so the Chinese are doing this much more intensively. They offer PCR tests and they collect the genes. And this it's important, just the like US patrol, when the cowboys went to the West and uh, um, put up their claims, this is mine. I'm the first one who's here. This is what they're doing now in our genome and uh, register patterns uh, with the health data which they correlate with the gene data saying this is something that could be changed and we register patent here and then they go to the um, investors uh, asking for money that's what's going on it is the gold the gold rush and they want to do this as long as possible and as much as possible because they haven't got to the Pacific Ocean yet. They haven't discovered everything yet. And that's the main reason why the investors do it. And the data companies are, have great interest in this. Everybody who can file a patent for this are interested in getting the claims. And we let this do because we are lame with here and the politicians exposes to this massive experiment. That is what's behind it. We see that of these uh, mad people who want to change the world government and the real interest, the tough interest in this, the hard interest is the data and um, the data companies and the medical research and the companies behind this. Well, then BioNTech um, comes from this uh, cancer research. I don't know if it did everything and anything else. I don't know. But uh, there, there's talk of a cancer vaccine, uh, so that is probably something that uh, will be called a vaccine. They try to cover everything up with the vaccination term because that allows them to do more than with gene therapy, and that's why they call it vaccination. Actually, our authorities should uh, see this and say, no, sorry, this is not to stop the infectious diseases, but that is uh, against cancer. So don't call it vaccination. Vaccination is something that you do against um, uh, pathogens and not against uh, cancer. So you can't vaccinate against uh, headaches or to make the uh, sportsman more performance, uh, call it uh, vaccination because it is done with an injection. That's the blindness of the system that they use here. But it's immediately uh, understandable that you can do more there in terms of uh, figures because the gene therapeutic ideas that have been used in the past that uh, could only be applied to uh, sick people, to people who have cancer, because they could say, okay, you need uh, help important, uh, urgently uh, and we have nothing else, and then a patient can give their consent because they know there's nothing else possible. But we're talking about healthy people here, and that's what you're saying. It's about being allowed to do more because there's a lot of healthy people. They're all asymptomatic infected people, but you can really experiment around here because uh, by calling it a, a vaccine rather than an experiment. Well, legally, I think the Nuremberg Codex is very clear here. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's very clear. 
um, and things are done to people which they don't understand. Even the researchers don't understand. They just try things out, and the people are the guinea pigs. That's Mengele. Right, yeah. And I think that the people, if the adverse effects are more frequent, maybe things will happen, but apparently um, they have found saline solutions. Um, and the question is to find if it's causal, um, what we observe with the people, the changes, whether that is really from the vaccine, you have to have the control group. So that means there have to be some batches with saline solution so that you see that whether it happens there as well or not. So um, they uh, probably got this and they, they're lucky, they get their uh, vaccination passed and are happy and they didn't get the substance. But, well, only those who uh, label the, the batches and register them know what this is. And if we look at the Paul Ehrlich Institute, who uh, has uh, clearly said, well, we depend on the quality control of the producers as far as the content is concerned. That's uh, pure madness. Um, uh, so, of course, on a state level, they are difficult. Uh, they don't know what to do. Uh, then they have to sequence and they have to find the genetic code that is injected. And uh, this is something uh, the, the uh, authorities usually can't do. Paul Ehrlich does that alone. And this is why I don't wonder what if I don't know what effect that's going to have. If anybody finds out, if somebody notes it, wasn't there this phenomenon that the uh, vaccines uh, of with other vaccines uh, under development, the placebo is not necessarily saline solution only, but it might also be the vaccine without the virus. Yes, we have that in clinical studies that you uh, test against zero against uh, <clears throat> saline solution or a competitive competitive uh, drug depending on the design of the study do you know what it was like in this case in the case of the COVID 19 things here if i take a look at all these problems as far as i know they uh, use the saline solution i have a second question that i could also address which is this question of shedding and there is this uh, research that what, what the people want to do, the, where they want to have patents for and open new markets. The self-disseminating vaccine is one of these. And that means you vaccine a uh, fox, for example, with animals. And this um, vaccination then is uh, transferred to others. Um, and that uh, leads to a, a protection of the population. That is something that uh, can be tested with humans now as well. And then there's going to be shedding, of course. So then it is intended if they wanted to try this, if they want to produce and test self-disseminating vaccines, that would be deliberate shedding. So it could be the case that is those who have been in contact with the so-called vaccinated people develop symptoms like the vaccinated people themselves. But that is fully intransparent. I have no proof. This is mere hypotheses. I'm only vigilant 
because I know there is a desire of the people who want to make money for that with that uh, um, would do and we are in a situation now where we wouldn't note that this would be done but there's still a difference if these uh, self-disseminating vaccines were used and that would mean uh, let me put it uh, in a very succinct way that somebody gets the spike protein injected uh, then they develop COVID and then they can uh, infect others. Is that correct? I think it is only possible if the vectors can replicate. Uh, that means if the Johnson Johnson AstraZeneca are not like in the uh, in the uh, package leaflet is said, uh, if they are not able to reproduce, then nothing can happen. But if they are reproducible, then that could, this could happen. And even if it were planned, it could happen. We know this, for example, from polio, that uh, there was um, attenuated vaccine, but uh, it uh, did develop. And then that led to cases in the environment of uh, children who were vaccinated. And this may be unintentional. But if I look at the, if not at the nanoparticle, not BioNTech, and the other the other nanoparticle, but uh, that would only be I think Moderna. Uh, so only the other two with adenoviruses. The adenoviruses are used as vectors. They are genetically modified, and we have these every winter. We all know them, we transfer them, but we don't get much ill, we just get a little cold and that's it. So they are quite harmless and they are very successful in transfer and that's because we don't notice them and that's why we don't protect. Normally we don't need to, but if they are genetically changed and uh, would be transferable, then we would all catch them and then of course they would uh, probably um, be uh, reproducing in the lymphatic organs and lead to an antibody reaction. If it if it'll only also lead to complications, I don't know. It's always the thing that all these jabs that we have are unnaturally brought into the body because if we had a spray with uh, attenuated uh, viruses, then they would get where our immune system system would expect them. And then theoretically, if the dosage is right, one could do training for the immune cells without uh, injecting it into the blood. That would be harmless. But there is no, this, this uh, was tried and with the flu once, a spray, vaccine for children, I would have to look it up what the outcome of that was, but that would be a theoretical way in order to avoid that toxic reaction of the virus or viral parts of the spikes and that applies for other viruses as well. If that went into the blood and then this toxic reaction could be avoided, the, but self-disseminating I think about the vector vaccines that where these things could be tried and where we could uh, experience this. But it really puts the fear of the Lord in you if uh, 
you uh, might suddenly have this available as an, uh, a breathable uh, vaccine, then you just step into the uh, uh, into an airplane where you get a bit of a blast of uh, air from the top, and uh, that's the vaccine. Then all of a sudden, yeah, this would be if someone walks down the aisle in the aircraft and coughs all the way to left and the right, and everybody gets that. That would be this kind of infection. So we would be deliberately infected. That would be the aim of it. And then with an infection that doesn't harm us, that is better than the harm, whether it is, nobody knows. But when it's tried, uh, it's so high risk that people until now didn't try it out. So this is why they do it with animals, where it is also risky. But if we did that with people, that would be an unrecoverable mistake, a fatal mistake. And many people would suffer from it, possibly. So I hope it's not going to be done. But so with the damage, um, if you imagine this works, then you would develop COVID symptoms, but probably um, if it doesn't get into my bloodstream, I wouldn't have the blood, uh, uh, spike in blood uh, reactions. Yes, and probably the body, and that's what I always say with the uh, uh, harmful viruses that might be maybe coming from Wuhan. I tried to explain that harmful viruses that could kill us and make us very sick. Um, that's a self-limitating infection, which uh, can't develop to a pandemic because people stay at home and die, and uh, then the virus won't be spreading so quick and fast. A uh, virus which is a risk for health, uh, for life, does not have an effect. Well, recently we had this virologist and um, dance teacher, Willem Engel, with us, who pointed out that, I forget the... Um, Regulation. There is a paragraph in the infection protection right that it is allowed to use self-disseminating vaccines, and that was already put in the, the law. That was the point. And then he pointed out that with the mandatory um, vaccination, which is allowed against measles, these new uh, vaccines could be administered as well, along with this. Yes. Well, if we assume that Paul Ehrlich Institute is corrupted, then the control incidence is corrupted that we could rely on in the past, or should have to. And uh, so that's uh, also not reliable for other vaccines. Uh, so that means we have no safety in vaccines. We can't rely on it, then that's a very difficult situation. That's the bad thing about institutional corruption. We have to be full of mistrust that other forces are stronger than the will of the population expressed by the politics monitoring the Paul Ehrlich Institute. But we can see it clearly already, Wolfgang. We don't need to worry about it anymore. Of course, we're faced with institutional uh, corruption. If we look at what all the institutions that we should rely on are doing, they're all online, uh, on the line of WHO and Mr. Global, who um, got our politicians wire. Uh, the WEF, um, all the ones that we thought work for us, work for others. 
I don't think you can say that all the institutes are corrupt. I think that top management uh, is manned or staffed in such a way um, that this is possible. I think all the subject matter expert, experts that work there, they are very dutiful. And uh, I, ha I know at least uh, a dozen whistleblowers who contacted me. And it's always the question of how to protect them. Of course, they don't want to be what, what the information they give they give me um, is passed on. And I know that bad things happen there and they can't say certain things and that they have to do things that are prohibited. And so, so the question is, how long can that be kept secret? And so, dear um, Works Council, dear um, HR Council in these institutions, which I like to talk to in the past when I was a representative, if you joined up, dear Works Councils, and together raise the hand and say, we stop this, you could do so. You have great responsibility. Nobody can kick you out. You are allowed to say this. Usually you are civil servants and you are protective if there is unlawful things going on. So to the Works Council at DEFA, at Paul Ehrlich, at RKI, do your duty. Well, if you say that uh, bad things happen here in the institutes, um, can you uh, give us a bit more detail without threatening anyone? No. These are uh, personal experiences that people have gone through which are very personal and uh, concrete. But they basically go in the direction that people are leaned upon uh, to do certain things to suppress information. Well, they get instructions on how to behave, on how to express things, uh, what they shouldn't look into, or how they should, they should call things, how should they should classify things. That's the kind of thing. Well, well, uh, it's obvious that this is happening. We can see it in the judicial system. We can, as discussed earlier, we see it in the medical profession, but there are still people who don't go along. This morning in the mail, I saw a letter by a company, I can't find it right now, um, that I got from a company who deliberately promises their staff, we're not going along. If somebody falls ill, we don't give a toss whether they've been uh, vaccinated or not. We'll continue paying their wages. That is happening more and more. Nevertheless, the question of whether we're dealing with the institutional corruption is a rhetorical one, actually, at the end of the day. But I do agree uh, with you that, of course, not all staff members of uh, RKE or Charité uh, are corrupt, but the top where Mr. Global has installed their, uh, uh, his people, that's where people are corrupt, and that's why it should be possible to uh, get people to mutiny, to enter into mutiny. Well, they try to install power, power at the top of our uh, government, Mrs. Merkel, uh, who plays along, ministers who play along, candidates who will play along to be elected, uh, they're prepared. We see that uh, quite successfully. It was done in uh, France, Austria, where it worked in Germany. And the opposition should be also staffed that in the opposition, uh, there are 
people just think about the Greens. It can't be true. The ones who were against gene technology, against uh, nuclear power, the whole top must have been uh, changed, uh, follow uh, a top line. And the Greens live off uh, that they wanted to protect us from uh, nuclear power, from gene manipulation. And now um, they look and watch uh, what, what the load of atomic power plants that are nuclear power plants that are built around the world. That's the next round that we'll uh, go into. But I really don't believe that what everybody uh, can see that the majority of people fail to see that. Well, what does everybody mean? Uh, what? Well, it should be the electorate of the Greens who should Yeah, that would be very helpful already, yeah. Yep. I think we basically reached the end, if I'm not wrong, because we really, something went wrong here. We really plan to hear uh, Paul Alexander, the health research methodologist and former Washington DC pandemic advisor. So in DC, he was responsible for uh, advising the government on the pandemic. He was a senior official in the uh, Trump administration. He had an excellent strategy, was against the lockdowns and while he was on the Trump team, he wrote, there is no other way. We need to establish herd immunity and it only comes about allowing the non-high risk groups to expose themselves to the virus. So his idea was we get the herd immunity by exposing the non-threatened parts of the uh, population uh, to the virus, i.e. Uh, mostly the children that will lead to herd immunity. We would have liked to uh, interview him, but for some reason things went wrong there. By the way, this is uh, self, it is the best self-disseminating vaccine that we get right from childhood on. They don't get sick and they give us the update. So they are our trainers, the our immune trainers. And it's so natural and so simple. And they want to make business out of this uh, by injecting it through the skin. Um, uh, and if our children uh, cough at us and we wipe their nose, we get our updates and it's free of cost and uh, it's great. And uh, for thousands of years, um, it has been very, very successful that right until high age, we are we get herd immunity and uh, even the coronaviruses, as long as the Robert Koch Institute has been around, they were always flu virus, even after SARS-CoV-1, even after that uh, breakout in China, the Robert Koch Institute didn't think it's necessary to uh, assess coronaviruses as harmful. They simply forgot about that, and rightly so. There are other viruses which are much more, uh, much stronger or even stronger, and don't do this kind of thing. Well, basically, Wolfgang, that's exactly uh, the same you've said from the get-go. We get an update through the children, and he is saying the uh, children can be really helpful to reach herd immunity. Yes, that's something that you know if you uh, look at these things. 
I think every uh, doctor should know this. I don't know where they are and what they do and what they do to do all this. It's the basis of adolescent uh, doc uh, doctor for young people, of school doctors. That's their background. They know what to do and they recommended us before we go uh, to see our uh, nurse homes or visit our grannies that can't train us well. They don't get, they can't do the update, they can't climb mountains anymore, and so they can't be uh, subjected and exposed. They have to be protected, yes, but they seem to have forgotten this as they get so much money for the test and the vaccination. Maybe some of them will wake up uh, at some stage and um, then ever more. That's the hope we still have. Wolfgang, uh, we still have one thing that is Matthew Aritz, who we had uh, here before. I'd say that Paul Alexander had a very tight uh, schedule. Uh, it says 2 p.m. in red. Something will have delayed him. But we have Matthew Erich, who we heard in the past, a journalist, historian, and founder of the Canadian Patriot Review. He will tell us uh, very important about hyperinflation, fascism, and war. How? but also uh, at the end of the day how the new world or world order may be stopped once more maybe i could quickly say uh, take leave i have to go back to uh, the campaign I, ha I have to tell people that they have to go to elections and vote and uh, uh, some people are trying to stop the elector elections by uh, telling people not to go to vote. So if you want us to address this in Parliament, then you have to go and vote for us. That's quite clear. And go there personally. You never know what's going on with the letter uh, vote. So go there personally. And that's why I have to uh, take my leave. All the best to you. Thank you. And the best of you as well. Good luck. There is two ways now. You can either stay here and listen to the German translation in this channel, <clears throat> or you can switch channels and listen to the um, original version. There is a link. Sometimes uh, it's a bit confused, and uh, so. So we have a choice, either German um, in German um, with the synchronization, as it were, or the English original. Matthew, this is uh, we just had to give a, a few organizational instructions here because our viewers can now I, they have a choice. They can either view and listen to us in English, the original version, or they can uh, hear a synchronized, a German uh, synchronized uh, version. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me back on. And uh, it's a pleasure to uh, go over some some very big and meaty ideas for you and your audience uh, once more. Excellent. Yeah, we can't we can't wait to hear this. It looks like very, very hot topics that you're going to be talking about. Well, I'll, I'll try to make them as uh, as interesting as possible. And indeed, the, these are multiply connected ideas. Um, I, I am very happy that we have some live translations, and so I will do my best to speak uh, slowly for sympathy with the translator as, as I possibly can, though I, I apologize immediately to the translator because I sometimes do uh, move faster than my my uh, <laughs> my mouth should permit, so uh, I do apologize if that happens. You're doing pretty well right now. <laughs> okay, good. 
<laughs> so let me uh, just begin with a little bit of a screen share. I, I took the liberty to make a little bit of a, a PowerPoint um, featuring some of the ideas I outlined in a recent article uh, that I was asked to speak about today, um, entitled uh, Hyperinflation, Fascism and War, How the New World Order Could Be Averted Once More. Mm -hmm. It does touch upon some of the themes that I raised, uh, if anybody has watched the last presentation I gave uh, for your committee uh, about a six weeks ago, yeah. uh, though it does differ. Um, one thing that I think most people have come to realize now is that there's more to this than simply the fraudulent science behind a pandemic. Uh, there has been an idea that was circulated, I think January of 2020 originally from the World Economic Forum itself uh, around the idea of a great reset. So I wanna give a little bit of meat um, onto the bones of that. Mm -hmm. Klaus Schwab himself had said in his own words that the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our society and economies from cultural to social contracts and working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. So this is something which is a, a creepy idea, but it's something which has been permeating many of the circles around the World Economic Forum, the Davos crowd, um, is that the current crisis isn't really a crisis so much of it being an opportunity to fast track the shutting down the reset and creation of a new system, which is not just economic, and it's not just about coronavirus, but it blends in. Um, every aspect of human society, cultural, as he says, education, uh, political, strategic, um, and even the, the COP26 summit that's coming up in the UK overseen by World Economic Forum trustee Mark Carney um, makes it very well known that it's not really just about the climate crisis, but rather the climate crisis, as well as COVID-19, uh, which together are being merged into one strange um, uh, problem that we're all supposed to be afraid of and modify our behavior globally around. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to just get it. What is underlying this? Um, because this didn't just crop up yesterday. It didn't crop up in June, 2020. In fact, mm -hmm. even going back to uh, September and August of 2019, you had people like the, uh, the former head of uh, the Bank of England, Mervyn King, who said that we are on the verge of a financial Armageddon. This is before coronavirus. Um, even before that, you had the head of BlackRock, uh, Vice Chair uh, Philip Hildebrand of, of BlackRock, which, is, which manages trillions of dollars of US asset purchasing right now, who said that we, were, we need a global financial regime change. Again, August 2019 at the uh, Jackson Hole uh, Central Bankers uh, Conference. So again, this even this didn't did this begin at that date in August 2019? No, it didn't. But there's been something that uh, COVID was created and sprung onto the world as a cover to manage something that was going to happen anyway, even without COVID. Now, COVID did accelerate the rates of collapse, the breakdown of supply chains. Yes, but it did not. Anybody who says that it caused it would be a fool or a liar. Matthew, one of the things Matthew, can I quickly interrupt because there's one question I've been meaning to ask for a long time when you showed us the picture of Klaus Schwab what is it with this guy I mean what kind of suit is he wearing uh, what is the uh, medallion or whatever it is that he's wearing does he think he's um, Darth Vader or something 
I don't know. He's really playing into uh, this evil, yeah. you know, uh, genius thing from the from Austin Powers. I don't know. It, it's a bit of a joke. <laughs> That's okay. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just I thought maybe you knew, you knew what this is about, but maybe he's just. Fortunately, I don't know what's going through his his sick mind. You know? <laughs> if I find out, I'll let you know. Okay. Um, but no, so uh, getting back on track, the, the systemic breakdown um, was something which was well underway already a decade ago. This this is a 12 year old uh, uh, overview of the rate of growth of the derivatives cancer. Essentially, back in 19 in the 1980s, early 80s, one would have gone to jail for the, the types of uh, gambling on junk bonds which has become common practice in the modern day banking system. Deutsche Bank is highly infested with this. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a breakdown of the big uh, American too big to fail banks uh, with JP Morgan being the most infested what, with over $80 trillion of derivatives. But overall, this is about $708 trillion, um, it, which is essentially unpayable debts of a variety of, of sorts that have been securitized, that have been insured, insured that have been uh, gambled upon. Um, on spot markets, on uh, long-term futures markets, commodities markets. And at this point, when this graph was put together, this already was about 20 times more or 10 times more than the world GDP, which was about $80 trillion. Um, since 2008, 2009, the derivatives have only skyrocketed. There has been more loopholes created in things like Dodd-Franks, and it's very difficult for even professional economists to calculate how many there are in the system because they are so nefarious, opaque, and difficult to even measure. But all that to say, this is this, these are largely based upon a bubble, which has at its foundations unpayable forms of debts in still subprime housing, corporate debt, other forms of junk bonds, even national debts of, of various sorts that won't be paid. Um, and when the defaults start, you will have a deleveraging like we've never seen before. On top of that, we have the additional problem of COVID having created $24 trillion of additional global debts, $8 trillion in the United States alone. Um, supply chains, as I've mentioned, have begun to break down and consumer price inflation indexes have also increased by about 4% uh, just in the last year alone. Um, and we're just on the tip of something. Deutsche Bank chief economist uh, David Fultzl Landau recently said that we're on the, the verge of a chain reaction financial crisis. His solution is idiotic because he just thinks we should uh, increase interest rates like we did in the early 80s. Um, the idiocy of this is that in the 80s, that really just destroyed whatever little small and medium enterprises exist that I can go through that a little bit. I've got four slides in the present age, and then we're going to jump back into the contents of my article, um, and which also takes a part of a book that I've, I'm about to publish. It's volume two of my Clash of the Two Americas, which people can get off of the CanadianPatriot.org or RisingTideFoundation.net websites to get the fuller story. But all that to say, um, the sort of thing that we need to look at underlying behind the derivatives is the breakdown of the real economy. And so something happened uh, around the time of the early 70s, a shift occurred. This is a 1947 to 2009 uh, trend breakdown of manufacturing with the increase of what's called fi the fire economy as a per a percentage of GDP overall. Uh, that's finance, insurance, and real estate versus the productive sector of manufacturing. And so going back to 
really just 1971, we have still 22% of the overall GDP being manufacturing. Um, and the fire economy is still relatively small in proportion. Today, that has bubbled to be double the manufacturing financial services. Another way of looking at the same sort of thing is this other graph, which showcases the collapse of industry and agriculture over the same period um, with the increase of services, the services economy, which really began springing up, you know, going back to just 1970, still you had about 30% uh, of the distribution of the labor force imp uh, working in manufacturing um, at, added to agro-industrial that was over 40% and services since 1970-68 has just taken over the majority of the economy. And this was a period where we became a services consumer economy. The idea was in the early 70s that the dollar would be floated from the fixed exchange rate system, which would had formerly dominated the post-World War II years. And that's when you had the biggest rates of, of of technological growth, buying power, living standards was the 25, 30 year periods after World War II when big economic projects were being built in North America and in Europe. Um, after that, the decision was made, which I'll go into on the part of certain forces that took over control of the US presidency under George Shultz, Henry Kissinger, people like Zbigniew Brzezinski later with the Trilateral Commission and David Rockefeller, who was the founder of the Trilateral Commission. They initiated a this, this uh, sleight of hand, which said, no, no, we used to be an industrial economy. Now that's over. We're going into the post-industrial model. We will now begin floating the dollar, which will now be valued on, on, the, um, on the markets. The markets will determine the price of dollar as well as oil, which will be integrated. That was called the petrodollar, created by Kissinger in 73. And increasingly that would be accompanied by mass deregulation and um, a focus on myopic making money now, no big projects, no long-term intentions to build things for the future like we used to do. That was the old wisdom. So the consequence of this wasn't just the breakdown, the atrophy of our infrastructure. We had also the, um, the collapse of, of agricultural output um, began to, to melt down. The US machine tool sector collapsed by 45% in the 1980s alone. Automobile production collapsed 44%, steel production 49%. Bankruptcies by 1980-82 skyrocketed because with the massive interest rates of the 70s, Volcker, the federal chairman and, and trilateral commission member called for a controlled disintegration, um, <laughs> which is a, a strange choice of words, I must say. Uh, which involved increasing interest rates for two years to 20%, which again, the only people who could survive those were big behemoths like Walmarts. Um, everybody who was a small, the backbone of the economy, much of the American Mittelstand uh, was wiped out during this process. So additionally, infrastructure wise, we just had a, a, an atrophy where be, we began to create not just speculation onto fictitious capital like junk, junk bonds, which became normalized by 1987 under Greenspan when the economy was about to collapse uh, during Black Tuesday, uh, which was a period which people were afraid was gonna be like a new Great Depression. Greenspan's solution with the collapse of the Dow, the Dow Jones by 25% was to say, no, no, let's just increase junk bonds and speculation on derivatives. That's what created the current crisis and meanwhile, the physical economy was, was permitted to continue to atrophy. 
Um, infrastructure today, the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates that about $4 trillion is needed for infrastructure just to bring it to maintenance to safety levels, let alone improvement. This, so we lost something in terms of a wisdom of thinking about the future at the time that people like Robert F. Kennedy were assassinated and his brother earlier, John F. Kennedy. Um, another way of looking at this is the collapse of R&D, which went down from 2.5% overall research and development of, by government spending in 1971 to 0.4% uh, today. The US, the thing that drove much of the US economy, which was the space program, um, really peaked at a 4.5% spending in 1965 uh, before the moon landing. After that, it began to be severed, cut down year to year to the point that as soon as somebody played golf on the moon in 1973, the whole Apollo space mission was shut down and funding was never brought back up above 1% of GDP. Today, it's far lower. Um, the, the, the space program, people have to understand, drove the entire economy. Um, microwave technology, uh, uh, GPS, internet, uh, God, medical breakthroughs, uh, all, everything, there's rarely, uh, there's hardly a thing in our, in our system today which has not been radically revolutionized by the space program of the 60s. Um, so that was shut down. We were, we, the capacities we had to change the, the nature of the system we live in by, by scientific and technological progress was taken down so that we remained within a fixed system reliant upon diminishing rates of oil, of coal, of things that were being monopolized by certain figures uh, that you would find, I think, today very active around the World Economic Forum, which was then still just coming into being in 1971-72. Uh, Henry Kissinger, by the way, being somebody who Klaus Schwab said is one of his key mentors and one of the uh, minds behind the World Economic Forum originally in 71, um, as were people like Alexander King and Aurelio Pichai. Uh, who headed the Club of Rome that presented in many of the conferences in Davos in 72, 73, that were trying to get across that we were, humanity had to recognize its limits to growth. The last slide I have for our modern age is the breakdown of investments into fusion power, which back in the 60s, 70s, people believed was on the, was the next thing to replace fossil fuels and limited resources was the breakthrough into the atom. The sad fact was that the investment levels were cut down so that the scientists would be demoralized. They would not have the, the financial resources to build prototypes, to test their ideas. And they were let to grow old and die away so that the new breed of uh, people who are working on fusion science are trained not by reality or having done experiments, but increasingly on computer models that don't have necessarily a bearing on how physical reality works. Um, this is also a crisis we have in engineering where many of the engineers who built the big projects and have the living experience are in their 80s, 90s or older um, or dead, leaving, leaving newer generations who are being trained off of computer model thinking without an ability to really think through what is, what is it like to really build a society. This is a huge cultural crisis we have to think about. I have a, a couple of three quotes here that I just think get punctuate the idea very well of what was going on, what was the intention of the idea. And I, I, I accept being labeled a conspiracy theorist. I wear it as a badge of honor. When you read some of these books written by those who made policy back then, um, you, one couldn't really avoid it. 
Zbigniew Brzezinski, who became a, a leading controller of President Carter and even Ford, was a co-founder of the Trilateral Commission, which really took control in the, in the 1970s, as, as I mentioned. He wrote a book, which can in many ways be seen as the manifesto of the Trilateral Commission, called Between Two Ages, America and the Technotronic Era, wherein he wrote in 1970, the Technotronic Era, as he, as he calls it, involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite unrestrained by traditional values. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing every, even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. Now, I mean, just looking at how some of these, these creepy figures uh, pushing vaccine passports and uh, different forms of, of social credit fiascos, just think about how they're thinking and think about what uh, people like Zbigniew is saying here um, early on. This is right before the US dollar was floated onto the floating exchange rates and detached from the gold reserve system. Um, one of Huntington's projects was the creation of a trilateral commission book called Crisis in Democracy, written by, uh, co-written by one of his associates named Samuel P. Huntington, who has been a frequent uh, participant at the Davos summit. He's actually the one who coined the term the Davos man, the gold collar generation, as he calls it in, in 2004. Samuel P. Huntington wrote in this book, um, 1975, we have come to recognize that there are potential desirable limits to economic growth. There are also potentially desirable limits to the indefinite extension of democracy. A government which lacks authority will have little ability to impose on its people the sacrifices that will be necessary. So in, in his mind, what is a government for? Is it, is it for the defense of the general welfare of the people or the, the defense of the common good? No, it's to impose sacrifices onto people. That's the point of governments. There's no other purpose but that. Um, and certainly when you look at people like Mark Carney and other devotees of the World Economic Forum, that is the only view that they see of, as, as a purpose for governments is to be an extension of those who wish to have a stakeholder capitalism or a fourth industrial revolution to impose um, austerity, draconian cuts in living standards onto people, but not, not to protect people from them, which was the whole point of why sovereign governments, this is my words now, but the whole reason why sovereign governments were created to begin with was to organize by the people to protect ourselves from those types of sociopathic forces wishing to uh, hurt people and destroy their freedoms. Um, that's what the American Revolution was about, which people who claim themselves to be American despise so much. A Canadian who spent much of his time doing a lot of destruction to both Canada and the United States was also referred to by Klaus Schwab as his mentor, um, was a co-founder of and former chairman of the World Economic Forum, Maurice Strong. Maurice Strong did many things in his life. Um, none of which being very good. But one of the things he uh, did that was very, I think, insightful was he said in, he gave an interview called The Wizard of Baca Grande, which is a, an estate that runs, controls much of the water aquifers in the United States that he happens to own. Um, and this person who's in many ways the, the grandfather of the modern environmentalist movement, he was the co-founder also of the Club of Rome of Canada, um, said that he was musing about a book he would like to write, he says. 
in hindsight, but he said, what if a small group of world leaders were to conclude that the principal risk of the, to the earth comes from the actions of the rich countries? And if the world is to survive, those rich countries would have to sign an agreement reducing their impact on the environment. 1991, he's saying this. Will they do it? The group's conclusion is no. The rich countries will, won't do it. They won't change. So in order to save the planet, the group decides, isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? Just let that sit there for some people who might be a little horrified or shocked that he just said it. Um, so you got to keep in mind that the, the, there's a certain ethical charge, almost religious in its, in its hate for human beings and what human beings do. Because when human beings have freedom, when we have uh, access to um, basic qualities of our creative reason, our full faculties are, are, are given to us because we've had a good education, we've had a good culture, we're part of a society which is going somewhere, which has a future. We have security in that sense for the future. What we do, tend to do is we want to make things better and we problem solve. The, fact, the, the manifestation, the way that expresses itself is through overcoming limits to growth. We're not satisfied with just saying like 100 years ago, you know, standard of, of life expectancy in Montreal was maybe 45 years of age on average, high infant mortality. Um, we didn't have access to many of the resources that we have today. Supercomputers, things like that were an, ima an imaginary thing. So we, we encouraged a culture of creative discovery that then allowed us to leap over the limits to growth uh, by discovering new laws of the universe and applying them to benefit humankind. Um, discovering that new things on the periodic table to which we did not think had value, like thorium was an element that we used to, to not do very much with until the advent of, of nuclear technology, which allowed us to then tap into the energy of thorium for reactors that could power life for human beings. So we change our relationship to the periodic table, which no other animal does. People like Maurice Strong, like Alexander King, Klaus Schwab, Kissinger, all, all of these creepy figures despise that characteristic because they're control freaks. Whenever we do that, we become very difficult to control. The, the things that they monopolize no longer have the value in controlling the system. So you break the rules of the game and the great game must never have its rules broken. First rule of the great game, don't break the rules of the great game <laughs> or else assassinate the leader who tries. So uh, that for some words of, of opening, um, I think the other second half of my presentation, I'll try to move faster through some history and, and wrap this up within an hour it's, total. Uh, I think I find it incredible that we're obviously dealing in um, a number of actually a whole procession of uh, psychiatrists, professors of psychiatry and psychology have confirmed this to us. Isn't it incredible that we're dealing obviously with psychopaths. We are, we are. And it's difficult for a lot of people to see it because they're masquerading under a veneer of morality yeah. and empathy, right? <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, it's really that. And it shows you as well too, that, that morality has more, to, more than just emotion to it. You could be a very emotional person who feels very strongly about things, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to do evil. There's something more to it that, you know, the emotions have to be matured along with the mind, with reason, and together they, they have to harmonize uh, for us to really um, be sure that we are not other directed. To yeah. be sovereign as a sovereign society means every individual 
has to be able to internally generate the, the, the decisions within themselves about what is their, their nation, what is the future, what is the past, how do they fit themselves as an identity within a process that's bigger than themselves. And see, the thing about a, a consumer society that was created in the early 70s is it detaches everybody from the continuity of the, 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 the whole that they are parts of, right? We're all mortal, we're gonna die, but we can all freely choose to organize our identities around something bigger. And this is why the oligarchy has put so much effort into cutting us off of certain things like the family unit, religion, uh, national sentiments. These have all been targeted for uh, cutting off so that we would all just float around like myopic little particles within a stochastic machine that could be then thus easily controlled like a herd in some pre predetermined direction. Mm -hmm. That's not human nature. That's more like what, what you could get animals to maybe do in a herd, but even then <laughs> animals wouldn't willfully destroy their own uh, children. So anyway, uh, back into a little bit of historical precedent because even this, what we're seeing right now, this dynamic from, from 1968, 70 onward is not without precedence. And we have elements that are akin to hyperinflation because we have been printing money with no foundation to it, but it's also akin to, and that's sort of what we've seen in 1923 Weimar, which I'll go through. Mm -hmm. um, but it also has elements of the 1929 uh, meltdown of, of the Great Depression, um, which wasn't really hyperinflation. If anything, that was deflationary. That was a speculative bubble system of the 1920s that was created under deregulation in from 1923 onward um, and and junk bonds effectively bad bad debts which I'll go through were created that ultimately deleveraged under defaults so we have a bit of a combination of both but even though this is somewhat new today in, in our world the the solutions are relatively the same in principle and I'm going to look at what were some of the solutions that could have been done in 1923 that were that certain brave people attempted. How was that subverted? And again, we'll look at the case study of 1929 to 33. So <clears throat> the League of Nations in the, in the wake of World War One, which is a war that should never have happened. There's no reason why the war World War One happened to this very day. And I'll, I, I challenge people to find a history professor that will give them a satisfying reason why World War One happened. The only people who have a satisfying answer are people who have looked at the British intelligence running uh, the show, who under people like King Edward VII had managed to, to create a triple entente specifically to destroy the potential alliance of Russia, uh, Germany, and uh, even the United States in the 19th century, which was being organized by people like Otto von Bismarck, uh, Count uh, Sergei Vita, the, the Prime Minister of, of Russia, uh, Gabriel Hanetot, the Foreign Minister of, of France, as well as Sadi Carnot, the assassinated uh, President of France in 1895. Um, so there was the, the need to destroy something in the mind of British imperialists that was organizing itself around protectionism, around large-scale rail projects, development of long-term credit, um, using the Abraham, Abraham Lincoln economic paradigm. Um, at the time in Germany, it took the form of Frederick List and the Frederick List movement uh, of industrialization, getting rid of British free trade by going for protectionism and working together bilaterally and trilaterally with other countries for win-win cooperation. Uh, the Berlin to Baghdad railway that Bismarck had put into motion was a part of this to modernize the Ottoman Empire. All that to say, it's only by looking at the conspiracy to destroy that dynamic by the part of the British Empire that needed to keep 
the world under maritime control of, of sea lanes, which is what the British uh, had used to, to maintain its world empire. You, you, without that, you couldn't understand why World War I happened. All that to say World War I did happen. Unfortunately, idiots went along with a self-destructive policy and it turned into a four-year meat grinder. Um, the outcome was the creation of the League of Nations. The armistice was effect, the 1918 armistice was effectively a, a total looting of Germany. Uh, the dismantling of the navy, the imposition of $132 billion uh, gold, gold marks uh, of debts that were everyone knew was unpayable. That was not a secret. Um, the, the giving up of territories, Alsace-Lorraine, Ruhr, North Silesia, the, uh, Germany lost 15% of their arable land, 75% of their iron ore production, 26% of coal production, 8,000 locomotives and 225,000 rail cars were all confiscated by the victor nations as so the means of producing wealth real wealth was destroyed was taken away from germany and they were just told to pay these debts that you how are you going to pay that and so on the one hand they were told much like today's imf and world bank economists telling to, telling poor indebted countries that we're only indebted because they took on conditionality laced loans they were told well stop your stop your your imports increase exports so Germany did that, and both collapsed within the year by 60%, imports and exports alike. There was nothing left except turn on the printing press. And so we know the horror story the, the, where one dollar would uh, one where where one dollar would be purchased for one uh, uh, Reichsmark in uh, 1913. By the time that uh, hyperinflation really began to strike. Um, that amounted in, by October 1923, there was 496 quintillion, quintillion um, uh, gold marks in circulation. It was just being printed and printed with, and value was completely destroyed. It took something like, uh, what was it? Uh, 428 billion uh, Reichsmarks to buy one loaf of bread. Um, it was devastating. And so people, as you can see in this image, were playing with bricks of money, little kids, uh, people were carrying wheelbarrows. They were, and, and within the course of a day, the value would plummet, but it would lose double its value easily. So people had to spend their money as soon as they got it. Um, but it was devastating. Industry now collapsed 50%. Physical industry collapsed 50%. Unemployment rose to 30%. And for those who had some, val some money to spare, many of the Germans went a little bit crazy and were even short selling against their own mark to try to make money. Kind of like what's happening today where people are short selling against the, the, the value of the US dollar, which is only itself increasing the likelihood or speed at which that dollar will collapse even further. Um, so it was bad. People were burning this stuff to stay warm. Now, I alluded to this in my last presentation. Um, I do want to say a little bit more about this. The resistance involved people there was resistance, it didn't have to go this way. Um, what we have here are Warren Harding, the new American president between 1920 and 1923. Uh, we have to the right of him, uh, Georgi Chechedin, the Russian foreign minister. Um, to the bottom left, we have uh, Kurt von Schleicher, who was the assistant at the time to Walter Rappenhau, the foreign minister of Germany. Together, uh, the Rappenhau and Chechedin and also Schleicher uh, organized what was called in secret the Rapallo, a treaty in Italy, 
where the Germans and the Russians together basically had a, a tree of goodwill to say, we will forgive each other's any debts we, we owe each other, we will forgive, we will have a new military cooperation, but also we will have investments into each other's infrastructure. Germany had a lot of specialists, a lot of people who needed work. Russia wanted to build infrastructure and electrification. And they had a program to begin to heal each other's uh, devastated economies after World War II that way outside of the League of Nations. The League of Nations was created as a kind of like a great reset agenda today. It was a, a proposition by the British delegation mostly, um, people like Lloyd George, the Roundtable Movement, Alfred Milner, who headed the Versailles Treaty. They created the League of Nations at the same time um, to create to basically say we don't need nation states anymore. We need to we need to create a world government where nations don't control their economy, they don't control their military. That's where our Article 10 of the League of the League of Nations was set up as a collective security pact. Uh, that became the model later on for the creation of NATO. Was art, that's that's what Article Five is based on is the League of Nations. Um, and sovereignty will be made obsolete so that we don't have wars anymore. Was the argument? Because um, obviously, nation states cause wars. That's what that's the only thing nation states are good for is causing wars. So if you want to get rid of wars, get rid of nation states. That's it's that's the formula. Uh, that's not new. So these guys basically went outside of that. And, uh, and they created something that would have involved no hyperinflation in Germany because it would have helped Germany rebuild its physical economy and infuse real value back into the dollar while also forgiving massive amounts of these war reparations. Um, Warren Harding was the president that many people are not aware of who was a very great man, greater than people realize, and who tried to bring back many of Abraham Lincoln's uh, measures in many ways. Unfortunately, and, and he even had a, a program to recognize Russia um, after World War One. Uh, he had a program to have the world's biggest trade agreement, uh, a tr $3 billion a trade agreement with Russia was being finalized uh, by Warren Harding. Um, that was all part of this trilateral uh, program of cooperation and development. Um, unfortunately, so the story as, as history unfolded, this fell apart, unfortunately, when Rathenhau was killed by the organization Consul, which later on became uh, broken up when it was illegalized. They, this organization, it was a terrorist group that had killed over 300 German politicians in only four years. That's a huge number. Rathenau, once he was killed, um, it was illegalized officially. It took them a long time to illegalize it, but they did. And it became a, a number of smaller paramilitary groups, uh, the biggest one being the Freikorps, which was the military arm of the National Socialist Party of Germany. Um, so they continued in a, in a new form under new protection. Um, you had Warren Harding, unfortunately, also not live out his presidency. He died in 1923 of poisoning, of oyster poisoning. No uh, autopsy was ever conducted on the body, but we do know that the effect of, of Warren Harding's death was uh, the takeover of the U.S. economy by J.P. Morgan, uh, Andrew Mellon, who was the Treasury Secretary, and people like Coolidge simply did what we did in more recent years. They liberalized the economy, deregulated it, allowed for people, speculators to access people's savings to gamble. And the outcome of that was the creation of a new bubble. And the Roaring Twenties are called that because it was like a party, easy money, easy, easy alcohol as well. It was prohibition, but didn't stop people. And that's that's the reason why prohibition was created. It, the, there's a whole book been, that's been written, written on this called Dope Inc. Uh, was to create organized crime syndicates that would then be useful in the post uh, prohibition age. 
But all that to say, the, the Roaring Twenties involved the creation of what are called broker call loans. Brokers, stock, stock brokers could borrow more money than they had um, for speculative purposes, which began at $1.5 billion. It skyrocketed by night to 1927 to $5.7 billion, and it continued to sk- skyrocket to become overvalued by fourfold of the, the whole economy. And on a specific day in 1929, everybody on JP Morgan's preferred clients list called in their broker call loans at the same time on the minute where everybody, all of these brokers, then all of a sudden had to pay the debts that they owed, but they didn't have real money. And so what happened was a run on the banks, defaults and a run on the banks. The only people who didn't suffer were people who were on JP Morgan's preferred clients list that had insider trading information and were able to sell of their stocks before the, the, the financial blowout happened and then purchase their uh, things for pennies on the dollar. Um, this list became public during the Pecora hearings in 1933-34 under Ferdinand Pecora. Um, this was well known at the time. Car- cartoons like this brilliant cartoon were circulated in magazines across the United States featuring an image of JP Morgan. Um, his son, Jer- John Pierpont, was the controller of those days of the U.S. economy. And the blowout involved a four-year shock therapy. It was really a psychological trauma on the American and also Canadian and European population of, uh, of unemployment, which skyrocketed to 25%. You had industrial uh, capacity collapsing by 70%. The means of production, the means of sustaining life was shut down. Agricultural prices fell far below the ability for farmers to pay for the cost of overhead, you know, employees, materials, seeds, uh, tractors, all of these things they couldn't afford to maintain. So farms were shutting down. Suicides had skyrocketed. People were starving in America. Life savings were lost as 4,000 banks failed. And again, the, the speculators that cr- who created the crisis were speculating on savings because there was no split between commercial and investment banks at the time in the Great Depression. So the solution that was being sold, oh, this is a picture of Senator George Norris who worked very closely with Franklin Roosevelt, um, who in the 1920s had a committee hearing where he was basically just showcasing this image of Wall Street's control over private uh, public sector uh, foundations, Rockefeller Foundation is on there. Um, so this is, again, it's not a new thing. It's, this, was, this was in the, the, the Senate of the United States being uh, demonstrated by people who were in the know of what was really controlling their collapse into a depression. And what was the solution being offered by the part of those who created the depression was fascism. Um, so in the United States, the fascist parties were being celebrated by Time magazine. Henry Luce, who ran Time and Fortune, were big fascists who had... Mussolini on Time Magazine's covers eight times, even after World War II began. Hitler, man man of the year. And this was being, again, sold that you can put bread on your tables if you just accept this new, great, innovative economic uh, system called fascism, corporate fascism. Um, It had different variants to it, but that was something that we had seen now with the rise of Hitler as a solution as well to the economic woes of Germany. Uh, Kurt von Schleicher pushed back against this, the assistant to uh, Raffenhau, but uh, as I mentioned in my last presentation, um, he was ousted in a bit of a soft coup in 30, 33 in January when Hitler was installed. And by the, a couple of months later, the Reichstag was burnt down in, in an inside job, blamed on a bunch of anarchist communists and justified a new dictatorship. 
Um, meanwhile, uh, Schleicher and hundreds of Hitler's enemies were, were all killed during the Night of the Long Knives. Never, no. mm. So this was being pushed in the United States as well. Um, the fortunate thing was that you had a, a large fight. There's a, a documentary called 1932, Speak Not of Parties, but of Universal Principles, uh, produced by LPAC, uh, which people can Google and, and watch. It's a very good documentary going through the fight um, leading up to, to Franklin Roosevelt's success in 1932. Um, in his inaugural speech, he made the point that the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truths. The measure of the restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values more noble than mere monetary profit. What you have on the left-hand side is an image from the London conference. It was a central bankers great reset type conference in 1933 that not many people know about, which was brought together by the League of Nations, the Bank of England and the Bank of International Settlements. The latter being the central bank of central banks created in 1930 specifically to facilitate debt repayments by Germany to the West. Now this bank also became Hitler's bank, which facilitated uh, the takeover of Czechoslovakia, uh, Czech gold, um, to the Nazi coffers. It continued to be a tool used to drive the Nazi machine throughout World War II. Um, but anyhow, this conference was a six-month conference bringing together 65 countries around solving the world economic depression by creating um, new powers to central banks and stabilizing currencies under mathematical equilibrium. So the idea was to impose new rules onto nation states saying that no nation could um, get out of balance with their their debts and what they could produce for other countries. So this required the US to cooperate. Fortunately, Franklin Roosevelt pulled the United States out of all cooperation with this conference and said basically he called it uh, the the mathematical fetishes of international bankers uh, are trying to take precedence over over sovereign nation states. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he said in a speech. And he basically said, we're not going to participate. We need to first do a real national economic recovery. It doesn't mean that he didn't believe we needed a new economic system. He did believe that, but he believed that nation states needed to heal so that sovereign nation states could be the force driving that recovery and not private central bankers. That's a very important difference. And the recovery process, the healing of the sick tissue was the key. How did he heal the sick tissue? Well, first, he didn't just destroy this, this Great Reset Conference in London. He also declared war on the Wall Street power structures that were funding fascism um, by doing several things at the same time inside of the United States. On the one hand, he forced through Glass-Steagall bank separation, breaking up the banks, saying you couldn't no longer be a bank that did speculation as well as commercial banking that, that lent to the real economy. You had to pick one or the other. If you, if you were a normal, a normal, useful bank, you would receive government insurance called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So if something went wrong, we would protect you as the government. But if you were a speculator, there'd be no too big to fails. We would not bail you out. You take your loss and you collapse if, you, if you're bankrupt. That's the way it should always be. Now this was made possible because of the fight by Ferdinand Pecora, who was given um, powers to go into JP Morgan's banks with subpoena powers and audit their books which he did in the, with, with teams of auditors, forcing the revelation of the preferred clients lists, uh, which had Andrew Mellon on it, as well as Coolidge, the former president. Um, but it also just showcased for the American public what were the abuses of these bankers 
uh, that's such that they created the, the bubbles that were induced to pop. And that gave Roosevelt the type of support he needed. Because keep in mind, a lot of these people, these same bankers and financiers who are fascists, like the Hearst Foundation, you know, w William Randolph Hearst, Henry Luce, they ran much of the media as well. So how was, it was a big fight over the, who would control the, the education of the people. Um, this, so these things were very necessary to put into the spotlight. Um, overall, a bankruptcy reorganization, there was a bank, a bank holiday. And for the banks that were solvent, which were 75%, they were reopened, put back in business. Confidence began to be restored. Um, for those that were insolvent, they were, they were put out of business. Um, this, the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, to oversee Wall Street's abuses was created. Um, FDR even put the Federal Reserve for the first time under federal mandate by putting installing his own ally, uh, Mariner Eccles, as Fed chair, who forced it in a limited way for the first time to behave like an instrument sometimes of the government, not always, because it was still run by a lot of international financiers who didn't care about nation states. Um, and to get around the Federal Reserve, which is a private central bank, this is not actually federal, he created what was, or he amplified the power of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which by 1942 was lending over 50% to the real economy. 50% of the lending that was happening was through not any banks. It certainly was not the Wall Street banks. They were constricting, private banks were constricting lending to the real economy. It was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which acted like a national bank. And every, things like the Kettenstadt für Wiederaufbau after, after World War II was modeled to reconstruct Germany on the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. That's an important lesson for people to keep that in mind. Uh, protectionism, the, the stopping of dumping of cheap goods that would destroy the physical economy. That had been a technique by the British Empire for hundreds of years. Protectionism, protective tariffs are the only way to stop that from happening. That's also what FDR did massively. On a positive note, these were all sort of negative measures to stop the evil, but to do good. Um, was a different matter and or similar, but it was made possible by this. You had uh, 45,000 infrastructure pro projects, small and large built in only six years after 1933. This is the thrust of the New Deal. Um, the four quarters projects. So there were many small projects, but they were organized by these macro projects on four corners of the of the United States around the, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the rural electrification projects that brought electricity to the South, that industrialized um, farms that had been using 200 year old technology very uselessly and also reclaimed desert land by uh, terraforming desert areas through wise water management resources. Uh, you had the Grand Coulee uh, air dam projects of the Columbia River Treaty Basin area. You had the St. Lawrence Seaway, Seaway area for New, New England and Canada. Um, you also had the Hoover Dam area, which was the biggest dam um, which all of these things were revolutionary. They were transformative and they created a long-term orientation for society again. Uh, Tennessee illiteracy went from 20% in 1932 to 80% in 1950. These areas became the, the backbone for the aerospace industry later that had formerly been like, you know, the show, the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was what things were like in the 20s and 30s uh, that, you know, people were just playing banjos with no education, a lot of racism, a lot of ignorance, not a lot of uh, long term living standards. And it was transformed to be a, a, a driving force of of economic progress that was utilized by the space program, uh, everything else uh, within only 20 plus years. 
Franklin Roosevelt's quote, I love this, where he said, describes the old fallacious notion of the bankers on the one side and the government on the other side as being more or less equal and independent units has passed away. He's referring now to those central bankers who believe that the central banks should always be private and independent of politics. That's never true because the people controlling the central banks have political agendas. They just don't want you to, they don't want you to know about them. That's why Mark Carney is good at what he does. But Roosevelt did not believe that. And he made the point government by the necessity of things must be the leader, must be the judge of the conflicting interests of all the groups in the community, including the bankers. This did not sit well with obviously those who were his enemies. Um, during this time, Roosevelt survived an assassination attempt, the same period that Kurt von Schleicher was being assassinated or was being ousted at the time. Before his assassination, you had a February 1933 assassination attempt by an Italian Freemasonic anarchist named Giuseppe Zingara, who uh, shot, uh, tried to shoot uh, Roosevelt at a, at, a, at a speech. And a woman in the audience saw his gun, hit his hand, and he ended up shooting uh, a few other people, including the mayor of Chicago, Cermak, who died saying uh, a few weeks later from his wounds. Roosevelt also survived an, assass or an overthrow, a coup, led by General Smedley Butler, who many people might have seen originally from perhaps uh, Michael Moore's documentary on the corporation, uh, where Smedley Butler uh, played along with this plan that was being run by the J.P. Morgan machine to recruit him because he was seen as the leader of the, the striking legionnaires, 500,000 strong World War I veterans who had not received their bonus pays. And the idea was to use him as a, a a tool to storm the White House, install him as a fascist puppet dictator. And he played along, he got lists of names, he went to the Congress, he blew the whistle. Uh, they made a video, which you can watch on YouTube, of him going through the plot. And luckily he was a patriot who blew the whistle, but still, I mean, it came close. Um, so Roosevelt understood the nature of his enemies pretty well at this point. Um, despite that, they didn't lose opportunities to kick the crutches out from uh, the rehabilitation patient. And at various times in 36, 37, the uh, Wall Street financiers worked very hard to cut off credit for the real economy. And, and so the New Deal was always a fight. It was never an easy thing. Um, by the time World War uh, II happened, many of his enemies uh, Roosevelt's enemies had to give in. Uh, people wonder, why is it that the British and the Wall Street banks that had funded Hitler and Mussolini, why did they end up fighting Hitler and Mussolini? It's a, it's a paradox for many people. Um, the reason why is Hitler, I mean, to be, to be straightforward, didn't want to be the second tier uh, enforcer within the New World Order. Hitler always admired the British. He saved the British on several occasions in, in various strategic wars when he could have wiped out the British. He chose not to because he always re respected the British as a fellow uh, pure stock of, of Anglo-Saxon you know, genetics. And, uh, and he wanted in his vision of the New World Order, which uh, Lord, I think it's Lord Lothian describes after a meeting with Hitler in 36, he describes how he wants Britain to control the darker skinned races of much of Africa, of India, um, much of China, because they're good at that. And the idea was that the American fascists would have the jurisdiction of the Americas. Um, so people around the JP Morgan Rockefeller Foundation networks were gonna be controlling the, that jurisdiction and uh, Germany and Italy would have their share. Germany would control much of the Eurasian 
mass Russia would be the Slavic zone to exploit the the cheap labor and 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 uh, you know agriculture and mining. Um, Italy would have some controls also of Europe and maybe some some of Africa and the, the Mediterranean. So that that was the way the world was going to be divided. Highly decentralized governments with local controls, with very top-down controls of banking and political structures run by a small coterie. And Hitler just didn't want to be the second tier. You know, he was like, I, you know, <laughs> we have such a machine here. We can be the ones driving it, and Britain can be our partner on equal or maybe even inferior levels. And Britain would not permit. They didn't. Some of them wanted that. You know, King Edward the Eighth wanted that. He was the one who taught Elizabeth the Hitler salute. And he always had a plan to be installed as the fascist king of England all the way through World War II. So that ultimately was was changed as they ousted the king. They gave him a little scandal to have an excuse to leave. And there was a decision made on the House of Lords and, and certain members of the British Parliament that they would not do that. Neville Chamberlain was also ousted and replaced with a more uh, anti-Nazi image uh, of Churchill. But FDR became really the spearhead of the fight at a certain point after 41. And um, and they couldn't control their Frankenstein monster. And that's why I, I say hyperinflation, fascism and war, how the new world order can be stopped once more because history is fluid. Uh, there's a fight, you know, the oligarchy, yes, does have a lot of power. They have been at this for a long time, but people project, I think, too much power onto the oligarchy's controls. And they forget that, no, if they really had the control that they project, they would have already have gotten done what they want today to do many times over. The fact that they have been thwarted time and again is a testament to something within the human condition that allows us to overcome um, this evil. And it's important, to, but we can't do it if we don't know this history. And I love this picture of Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill. And Churchill was you'll always have Stalin and Churchill on other sides of each other because for all of Stalin's problems, he liked Roosevelt a lot more and neither one, neither Roosevelt nor Stalin trusted Churchill at all. They both knew that he was a rat whose, whose job was to just preserve the global empire. That was Churchill's primary job, which is why Churchill also postponed the creation of an, the opening of a second front, which would have put an end to the war far, far earlier than it did. Um, so Churchill's job was to prepare the groundwork for a reorganization of the global empire after World War II. In his fights with Churchill, and they were not, they were not, they were opposing forces. Rose, Roosevelt was not Churchill's buddy, um, un, unlike what the history books say. Roosevelt's son, Elliot Roosevelt, wrote a book called As He Saw It, wherein he, go, he documents the fights that occurred in Casablanca um, between Roosevelt and, and, and Churchill over what the post-war world was going to look like. Roosevelt had a clear understanding of the need to liberate countries of the world by providing, by converting the arsenal of war into an arsenal of democracy, by helping, by utilizing the engineering powers of the military to help build and also the industrial powers of the American uh, system which was the only system that was not crushed during World War II, but to, to use that as a way to help uh, third world countries that had been abused by colonialism to help them develop modern infrastructure, modern education, full spectrum economics. And people could read this book for free online as he saw it, wonderful book. I just took a little snippet from it here, but he goes through like, we can make the, 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 the deserts of the Sahara bloom like a cabbage patch if you do things right. by by internationalizing the New Deal. 
And he had a lot of people that he had, he had organized with to do this as a, as a new type of system of win-win cooperation for India, South America, you name it. And in this, he talks to Elliot after a day fighting with Churchill. And it's very clear, Churchill's job is to preserve the empire. Um, he says, I'm talking about another war, Elliot. And he's already warning about the, the, the designs to create a third world war. Um, oh, no, no, no. He's talking about the war against uh, empire. That's it. I'm talking about what will happen to our world if after this war, we allow millions of people to slide back into the same semi-slavery. Don't think for a moment, Elliot, that Americans would be dying in the Pacific tonight if it had not been for the short-sighted greed of the French and the British and the Dutch. Shall we allow them to do it all over again? Your son will be about eight, about the right age, 15 or 20 years from now. One sentence, Elliot, then I'm going to kick you out of here. I'm tired, it's very late at night. It is, this is the sentence. When we've won this war, I will work with all my might and main to see that the United States is not wheedled into the position of accepting any plan that will further France's imperialistic ambitions or that will aid or bet the British Empire in its imperial ambitions. And again, if you look at the, the, the battles during Bretton Woods in New Hampshire in 1944 with Harry Dexter White, the American, uh, the head of the American delegation, which had delegates from India, from China, from South America and beyond, all over the world present designs for the reconstruction of their societies, all of which received the full support of the United States. Um, the idea was to illegalize speculation on commodities and, and currencies by fixing the exchange rates. At the time, it was to the US dollar. Um, that was because the dollar was stable. It had a physical economic backing to it. So it was a good basis for international, international exchange. John Maynard Keynes, who, by the way, we are told is what Roosevelt was an adherent to, it was actually a liar. He was there representing the Bank of England and the British interests. His solution was to allow zero real development of darker skinned nations. Keep in mind, John Maynard Keynes was a eugenicist. He was the treasurer of the Eugenic Society of Britain, which later became the Galton Institute as was Churchill, they were both eugenicists. They were both Malthusians. They, they both believed in world government and depopulation. And John Maynard Keynes wanted a bunkor, a one world currency controlled by the Bank of England to be the basis of international exchange. That was rejected in the favor of sovereign nation states and multipolarism instead of unipolarism at that time. So why didn't it happen? Well, unfortunately, the allies of Franklin Roosevelt, people like Harry Hopkins, who's there with Stalin on the upper left, uh, uh, Sumner Wells, the Secretary of State, who was ousted uh, in a scandal in 1943. Um, uh, uh, Wendell Wilkie, who was also there with Stalin and with Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who was sort of, he was the, the head of the, the Republican Party, who was the Republican New Dealer, uh, who traveled around the world for 500 days to organize world leaders around internationalizing the New Deal. He wrote about it in his, in his book, One World. Uh, Harry Hopkins, uh, sorry, uh, Henry Wallace, who's there with Roosevelt, was the former vice president, a great anti-imperialist, um, who was formerly the agricultural secretary and who later on, after uh, he was ousted in favor of, of Truman, who was a banker's boy, um, as vice president in January 45, um, FDR's early death in April 12th, 45, resulted in Truman, a complete George Bush Jr. style intellect, a puppet to become the president who loved Churchill and created a new Anglo-American alliance under the Cold War and established, basically broke all the alliances that Roosevelt had created, had forged with, with Russia and with China and, ascent, and went instead with the British 
intelligence uh, angle, which was to create a new world based upon uh, communism versus capitalism and an age of global terror, of nuclear, nuclear annihilation. And on the right is, bottom right is Harry Dexter White, the guy who I mentioned ran the Bretton Woods Conference and also was the first manager and, and head of the IMF before he was killed. And I, I say killed, uh, he was in 1948. Uh, at the very least, his death was very suspicious and untimely. And uh, he was the last sort of anti-imperial leader of the IMF. After that point, the, uh, the Vipers took control of the IMF, the World Bank, and other Bretton Woods institutions. I'll end it with one last note. Eisenhower tried in a limited way to push back against this, but he didn't understand what John Foster Dulles, who was largely uh, a, a big handler of him, he didn't understand a lot of the complexity that, that Roosevelt understood of the deep state. Roosevelt was more savvy. Um, but by the end, by 1960, Eisenhower did his famous military industrial complex speech, which I think everyone knows about, and warned and organized a young Kennedy who was preparing to take the helm. Um, Charles de Gaulle, Eleanor Roosevelt spent a lot of time as well um, organizing young Kennedy and his brother into the nature of what they were stepping into. Um, Papers have been written on this. My new book, uh, The Clash of the Two Americas, will feature several chapters going through this. People can get this in about three weeks' time on uh, CanadianPatriot.org or RisingTideFoundation.net, the two sites I manage with my wife, Cynthia. But all that to say, there's one quote. JFK brought back the, the legacy of FDR as his fight against the cold warriors that were pushing the Bay of Pigs that had programs to even do a limited nuclear war on Russia within his own joint chiefs, people like Lyman Lemnitzer, the head of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, were part of this cabal. Um, people like Alan Dulles, who ran and largely installed uh, the Gellin networks back into control of Germany after World War II to run uh, West German intelligence. I mean, a lot of these, these Nazis were employed by Alan Dulles and British intelligence to manage the world order uh, after World War II. So JFK fired Alan Dulles. He went to war with the Joint Chiefs and tried on several occasions valiantly to bring back the New Deal spirit by building big continental water projects, by initiating the space program, getting people to think outside of the limits to growth. Think about the future, think about the universe and think about your relationship to that universe. That's the only way you can create a citizenry capable of having the moral fitness to survive and see through uh, projects that are you know, long-term. He also, I, I would just say, we, we just hit the anniversary of the, his last United Nations speech in uh, uh, September 20th, 1963, before he died. He gave a speech, which is a brilliant speech. I wrote an article on this, calling for a US-Russia joint space program together. It's a gorgeous speech saying, why replicate all of this science and expensive research together? Why don't we just break out of the Cold War and begin to build trust again by working together on doing something which involves exploring the universe together. That would have changed the rules of the game, which is, as I said at the beginning, the only rules of the great game is you cannot break the rules of the great game. So that was not permitted. Um, though Khrushchev said later on that he would have, he did want to go, go along with that. But JFK talks about FDR and I'll end it here to, to wrap it up, I think. Um, where he says, we in the USA and Europe both believe in the achievement of social justice and in the progress of all our people. We both believe in democracy at what Americans call the grassroots, placing the individual ahead of the state, the community ahead of the party, and public interests ahead of private. 
ask not what you can do for you, but what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country type of idea, but to harmonize the good of the whole and the good of the, the, the inalienable rights of the individual as well, right? Both are, are sacred. Um, <clears throat> the fascist doesn't believe that. During the 1930s, when despair and depression opened wide the gates of many nations to fascism and communism, my own nation adhered to the course of freedom under the leadership of Franklin Roosevelt. His administration introduced a high degree of social, economic, and political reform than America had previously seen, including tax and budget reforms, land and agricultural reforms, political and institutional reforms. Workers were assured a decent wage. Older citizens were assured of a pension. Farmers were assured of a fair price. Working men and women were permitted to organize and bargain collectively. Small businesses, small investors, and small depositors and banks, thanks to the Glass-Steagall law, were given greater protection against the evils of both corruption and depression. Farms were electrified, rivers were harnessed, cooperatives were encouraged. Justice, social and economic justice, as well as legal, became the increasingly the right and the opportunity of every man, regardless of his means or station in life. So, that rounded, I think, up my idea. Uh, obviously, the, the article itself uh, goes more in detail. If people want statistics and, and a deeper breakdown, they can read the article, they can buy my book uh, and, and do the research. But I think that at the very least covered about 100 years. I that's why the great, that's why the great reset is happening. Yeah, it makes sense. And you're right. We can only do the right thing if we know history. And this is really, really important. So it's all right there. The uh, It's the New Deal. It's sort of like the New Deal. It's not the New Green Deal or whatever they call it, but it is the New Deal as envisioned by FDR and then later by uh, JFK. I think that's great. I think it's really great. The, excellent. Matthew, this is great, really. <laughs> I'm very I'm grateful. Glad, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, of course. How can you not like it? <laughs> and, and I hope it's useful. And I'm glad you said Green New Deal because yes, they, they are trying to do a Delphic sleight of hand by evoking yeah. something people feel strongly about as a vague memory, mm -hmm. but they took up the soul of it. They, they like the form of the Green of the New Deal in terms of the con government control. They like that. Yeah. They like yeah. the idea of forcing credit to go to certain things like infrastructure, they like that, but they want to define infrastructure around windmills and solar panels and green grids, which will have the opposite effect of the real New Deal. So the real New Deal was building infrastructure that increased the productive powers of industrial labor. It created, right, it allowed you to produce more at higher quality to sustain more people at more education. The Green New Deal, if you once, yes, you will create a spike of jobs to build a lot of windmills and solar panels. Sure, that's going to happen. But once they're built, they, they produce such a low quality of energy that you cannot power industrial uh, economics. You cannot melt industrial steel. You cannot build industrial infrastructure. You can't sustain your population and you don't need a mentally powerful population either. All you need to, to, to maintain a squeegee you know, hectares of, of, of sorry, uh, hectares of, of solar panel uh, uh, plants are squeegees, people to just like squeegee off the, uh, the sand and dust that collects every few days. That's all you need. So there's no educational level required. No, no absolutely <laughs> not. It's very obvious. I mean, if you take a closer look at what's been going on over the last year and a half, if you look at the uh, history lesson that you just gave us, uh, it's a misnomer. Green New Deal isn't Green New Deal. It's fascist New Deal. That's what it is. That's depopulation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs>
All right. This is really important. And you know, it came right. Um, this is the, the perfect point in time, I would say, because we're going to have our general, ele uh, general elections on Sunday. So I'm hoping that as many people as possible are watching this and are going to watch this before they go to the polls. Um, this, is, uh, this is both um, enlightening and it's inspiring. And how can you be any, how, how, how can you do any better than this? It's perfect. And yeah, we have to bring back the spirit of Alfred uh, Hauhausen. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, again, like when people look at some of these great German uh, statesmen mm -hmm. that are underappreciated, Hauhausen was assassinated in 1989 for a very specific reason, because he was trying to bring back, in, he was the head of the Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Right? And he was trying to revive this spirit of development yeah. that the Kunststadt für Wiederaufbau used to be, it used to mm -hmm. do that. And he wanted to bring that back. He wanted to forgive third world debts. He wanted a, a spirit of international collaboration on big projects that would, that's the only way to stop this type of Malthusian great reset type of Davos thinking is to really revive, help nations stand on their own two feet, empower sovereign nations to have full spectrum economics, empower them to have education and give people a future to aim for, right? Without a, without a, a vision, the people perish, said Solomon. So it's still true. Yeah. And that's what got him killed. Yeah. It did. Yeah. They all think it's the RAF. Well, who was pulling their strings? That's the big question. Well, and, and who was pulling the strings? When you start looking, one of my colleagues, uh, Martin Seif, has done incredible work. He, he's a writer uh, at Sputnik News, and, uh, and um, he was the former Washington Times correspondent for the Washington Times uh, uh, for 25 years. Really brilliant fellow. But he, he's done incredible amounts of work on the the imperial control of terrorist cells, anarchist terrorist cells, going back to the 19th century. Things like the organization console, but also like the, uh, the networks that killed uh, McKinley, mm -hmm. um, run by Emma Goldman in uh, 1901. Um, these were all tied to British intelligence. You'll always, as soon as you start piercing the, the onion, even back then, you'll find the same sort of institutions at, behind the scenes deploying what appears to be independently operating terrorist cells. And to this very day, this is, uh, it's hard to find any naturally occurring cases of terrorism that are not also being funded by the FBI, the CIA, MI6. You'll always seem to find that everywhere you look easily. Mm -hmm. And people have to try very hard not to see that. And what do you think, do you think there's, um, that that could be a way for the um, current, you know, uh, government in order to to introduce a little bit of, of stress onto the uh, the population to introduce a few but a fake uh, or, or I don't know, like kind of um, uh, enabled terror situations. Do you, would you expect that for the near future? That, I mean, just from, I mean, that's, that's in the nature of the game. Yes, certainly. You called it. Yeah. And people should be aware. I mean, look at the, the things that concern me right now are, are the sort of war game scenarios being deployed by the World Economic Forum in the last uh, few months uh, involving things like, you know, you've heard of cyber panopticon. Yeah. And the cyber panopticon thing is very just startling. It's very similar to the event 201 war game or pandemic scenario uh, games where they're de basically dealing with these, you know, fictitious scenarios of what do we do when a terrorist cell or let's say an authoritarian nation state like Russia or China is to uh, deploy uh, an attack onto our electricity grids or our internet that shuts down our internet and our, our ability to sustain mm -hmm. GPS that would take down planes, you know, and they're just running these scenarios innocently. 
Um, very similar to the sorts of things we saw before 9-11. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were these sorts of scenarios in, in the summer of 2001 that also involved, by the way, uh, one of the scenarios is called Dark Winter, involving the deployment of a genetically modified smallpox uh, by Iraq uh, into the United States as an excuse to invade Iraq. Yeah. They ultimately chose to instead go with the planes because that was another uh, scenario they were playing with was planes crashing into World Trade Centers and they had playbooks on this. Um, you know, so I think that, yeah, people should be very, keep their radar up very high because yes, you're, you're correct. These things are being used as psychological, psychological stress and trauma to justify. Obviously now it's, it's, they're, they're targeting increasingly domestic terrorism is the new fancy, uh, cool thing to, to talk about. And even recently they, they discovered that, uh, you know, who was it? The Satanist who was, uh, forgetting his name now, but there was a, FBI files were declassified, or at least they were leaked, that demonstrated that one of these leading white supremacist group leaders, and who also runs a satanic cult, um, forgetting his name, was on, has been on the payroll of the FBI since 2003 and received $80,000 since 2018. Um, these are the types of characters they need to have there to justify the sorts of things that, that Biden and, and the technocrats controlling Biden are, are want to bring online increasingly as part of this overhaul, you know, transformation of society into talking, something very orwellian are you talking about the guy who ran this uh cult by the name of nexium or something something like that uh -huh. i have it written down but yeah i, I wrote an article on that last mm -hmm. week and i the name's escaping me that's all right we know what you're talking about we have to be aware we have to be careful and cautious and, mm -hmm. and we will mm -hmm. be. But now that we have uh, the New Deal as a uh, way out of this uh, and as, a, as an idea to uh, follow, I think that's great. I've been playing with this for a long time because we've been reading so much about it, not just uh, uh, during the uh, Corona crisis, but uh, forever. And uh, it's a good thing that you've brought this out um, into the open again, because it needs to be known by me as many people People as possible. It's inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, I would just say yeah, if, if people go um, on the the RisingTideFoundation.net website, we ha we have breakdowns of what these projects look like in the modern day. Um, mm -hmm. There, there are the thing to keep in mind is you do happen to have there. There's no perfect country in this world that is not infested in various ways by deep state operations. Okay, there's nobody there's there's nobody who's not infected. You do have some who are more and others who are less infected. Who have conducted their own fights to, to you know purge this this cancer from their own system but nobody is liberated in that sense however what you do have uh, coming out of the eurasian parts of the world not the transatlantic but in eurasia you do have a coalition of nations around what are called the multipolar alliance so the two ways of resetting the world economy currently you have the unipolar rules-based order agenda which is another word for new world order of one center of command above nation states shaping the system. We know what that looks like. Then you have opposing to that, you have a countervailing view that no, it needs to be a, a, a multipolar, meaning nation states, right? That's what the United Nations Charter has enshrined in its base. It's the, just one thing. A lot of people have been told a lie. They've been told that the United Nations Charter is an extension of the League of Nations. That is not true. Franklin Delano Roosevelt made sure that the, the sacredness of the sovereign nation state would be enshrined in the United Nations Charter. 
and that the principle of the respect and non-intervention of any one power over another in a war of aggression would be enshrined legally in, in that organization. Now, the organization is very corrupt, right? I, just like the IMF and World Bank. However, at, their, at the heart of, of it, there is something fundamentally useful, like, like at the heart of the United States Constitution. There's something fundamentally useful despite the evil done in the name of the United States. So Russia, China, um, other countries working with the multipolar alliance are building big projects premised around cooperation, win-win cooperation, and also large-scale long-term infrastructure that has the effect of increasing population and decreasing the uh, in debt enslavement. So there's a lot of things about the Belt and Road Initiative being a debt slavery thing. It's actually not true. It's just that it's the investments, the 130 countries are part of the Belt and Road Initiative, and that's growing. Um, the entire thing is based upon empowering nations who are cooperating to develop industrial capacities to stand on their own two feet. Nigeria, Kenya, they're, they're actually doing what the IMF, the Western financiers never permitted, which is training generations of young people to become engineers and also have industries in your own countries. That is a very different way of thinking. Now, China has problems, and I'm not saying that this is a perfect thing. However, the oligarchy is afraid of this international alliance of nations around the greater Eurasian partnership or multipolar alliance. That's why they're encircling China and Russia with missile systems around full spectrum dominance. That's why they're running all sorts of uh, psychological warfare in our media to demonize both countries as being the, the big the big fault of the world, all of our problems are caused by those two. Mm. And the deflection is, is taken away from the Anglo-American intelligence agencies that are actually the ones who've been at the center of all of these problems historically. Don't look at us, look at those guys. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it makes perfect sense. Okay, that wraps it up, I guess, uh, pretty much for this weekend. <laughs> Thank you very much again, Matthew. Um, Oh, I, I think we're going to talk some more a little later um, sure. to kind of catch up. But uh, for now, just uh, I can only wish you a very happy weekend. You too. Thank you okay. for having me on. And uh, I wish your guests a happy weekend as well. Thank you very much. Take care. See you later. Bye bye. Yeah, pass off the off. Bis then. So uh, very important. These contexts, these is what you need to know to be able to take action. I read through this before because I knew that he speaks very quick. Um, it's important. It's important to know that there's the same people as before, like Vera Sharaf said, uh, incredible that we still have to fight against the same people and the war is not over. It's at least the same structures that you can see. It's really crazy how it worked. As long as we allowed it. Well, against this background, maybe you go first. I just wanted to make a little announcement. We are just working on something which is the uh, continued payment um, if people are expelled from work, from work. And we'll see to see how to get out of this and uh, what to do. Okay. What can we say? I just wanted to uh, remind you of this. This is really uh, decisive. It's uh, the solution. Just get out of it. Don't go along and the whole thing will implode. 
Ich stimme nicht zu. Vier Worte. Ich stimme nicht zu. I, ich I don't agree. I'm not going along. I'm, I'm out of it. I think that's the best way. Um, we see so many people are everywhere. Uh, they are stuck. But if everybody gets uh, out of it, uh, it'll be over quick. And we see this. We see this when the information comes out. People get skeptical on how the hectic the whole system is. The pathology conference that I've talked about within, I think, 16 hours, we had uh, I don't know how many, half a million of views, and it was uh, cut off by YouTube, but of course we popped up back on another place. So it's been shared, I don't know, I think millions of people have seen it by now, and we know that YouTube um, uh, uh, turns down the views. If we see that we have 10, 15,000 viewers here, at the same time when the stream is there, we see that 60,000 people go to our website, so we are in a bigger audience than we think we are, so we are on the right way. And again, let me uh, remind everybody, go to the 2020 News website, pick up that newspaper, share it, uh, could be important. It is designed in a way to um, pick up other people and uh, maybe give them an anchor point and uh, get open or become open to more information. We, um, right after this, we have one or two very short video clips that are really very uh, informative for everybody, uh, interesting for everyone. Okay, I haven't seen it myself. I'm looking forward to it. So I have to, again, uh, remind everyone of the donations if you want to support our work. It won't be great because, well, we have limited uh, funds, and so it would be great uh, also for you over media who are working on uh, the uh, film behind the scenes, uh, committee behind the scenes, resistance behind the scenes, looking forward to that. And uh, well, in that sense, it's a very important weekend for Germany. Uh, you could uh, think of where to tick uh, your where to cast your vote the basis is there and we'll meet again next week and it will carry on and i think we are on the right uh, path uh, of the things that are emerging concerning the vaccinations here that is just going to pull the plug all that remains for us to do is wish everybody a good nice weekend dear Hello, citizens. My name is Thomas Binder. I'm a cardiologist and um, internal medicine uh, med uh, doctor in Switzerland, and I uh, wrote my PhD thesis on uh, virology. And I am a uh, proud to be a member of Doctors for um, COVID, who advocate um, the reestablishment of reason. The so-called corona killer virus is nonsense. The supposed epidemic of national or international scope is nonsense. The implementation of RTP uh, tests, RTPC tests with healthy people is nonsense. What um, the Drossen RTPC uh, protocol is nonsense. 
the um, tests uh, for COVID-19 are nonsense. Anti-social isolation, social distancing, masks, uh, school closures, and lockdowns for asymptomatic, in the past once called healthy people, are nonsense. The unnecessary, ineffective, and unsafe serial experimental mRNA and DNA injections are nonsense. Every student of medicine has to learn about the basics of epidemiology, where they can learn that an epidemiological, um, uh, the um, declaration of a an epidemic of national scope needs to create a cohort for analysis. It represents, represents the overall uh, population and serves to uh, analyze the course of the uh, uh, pandemic by um, monitoring the uh, development of uh, immunity. Since even though uh, it was more than a year ago that uh, the pandemic has been declared, declared by the WHO, there is no such um, cohort. Either there is no one among your politicians and uh, physicians, there is no one with the knowledge of a medical student, uh, second year med medical student, or they're uh, cheating on you. The regressive measures, however, are real. They threaten our freedom, the basis of our life, and even our lives themselves. An epidemic with a common uh, coronavirus is um, blown up into a, a pandemic of a killer virus with unsafe, uh, ineffective experimental and mRNA and DNA injections. Uh, the bigger the damage uh, in the uh, roof of your house, the better the look at the stars. Dear fellow citizens, wake up, rise up, peacefully but determinately, if not for yourselves, then for the future of our children and grandchildren. Let's all jointly stop this unethical, unjust, inhumane madness. Now, before you talk about the elections and on Sunday, I'd like to take you along in my thoughts, which I have as Donna from uh, editing. I think to bring a new spirit into my uh, newspaper here, which is due to the uh, need to protect the health of all my employees. And for that reason, I would like all smokers to uh, follow the following restriction. First, 
smoking uh, colleagues should wear a, a band around their arms so that they can be seen. And if should if colleagues that smoke die, they are should the illness be in any context with their smoking not get any money. And also colleagues that do not smoke but are in contact with people who smoke and die and get sick and uh, are in contact with uh, tobacco smoke passively they will be banned from work for a fortnight without payment and also smokers and passive smokers or people who were in a different area uh, where smokers could have been have to pass a highly sensitive anti-smoking test which also finds the smallest dosage of smoke but not prove whether that will be tobacco only or lead to a health problem and fifth those smokers who do not want to live with these restrictions we have together with a, um, a manufacturer de developed an experimental smoking uh, stop um, which has been uh, tested to a 95% uh, possibility of efficacy. The uh, side effects are known, but as I think um, are currently slightly below the benefit of the therapy. The long-term effects of the uh, therapy is something we can't state on. This is why we don't have them. And next, uh, this experimental therapy for anti-smokers is given to non-smokers so that they are stopped from starting to smoke. And those who do not want to carry on with the therapy have to bear with uh, more limitations and uh, hostilities by their colleagues and the management. But I want to make clear that there is no legal enforcement of these uh, therapies but as a responsible person for all my colleagues and employees i appeal to the solidarity of everyone involved and um, reserve the right to do that mandatorily so now think about this and replace smoking by homosexuality diesel drive car drivers muslims do you see what this is about? Why do we let people who should guide our society divide us? Why do we allow politicians to take unnegotiable rights from us in order to give them back because we behave well as they like or don't? Why should we allow these people and parties and elect them again and again or um, listen to media that play these games. Ask this question to yourself before you make your two crosses in the voting ballot next Sunday.